Astonishing Legends would like to thank Skylight Frame, Hawthorne, Quip, Cameron Hughes Wine, Simply Safe, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Some stories are so bizarre, they'll have you questioning everything about them. Tales so preposterous that a critical evaluation of them becomes something of a joke. But we've learned from the history of Astonishing Legends that the people telling these implausible stories are often more stalwart in their beliefs of the details than folks who've experienced something less complicated. What does that mean? Tonight's legend is just such a tale. Dating back to Christmas 1978. Of course, we'll have our fun with our anchor story tonight. After all, one of the reasons we started this show was to have a chuckle at stories like Mrs. Hingley of the Mince Pie Aliens. We can't help but wonder if these things are intentionally presenting themselves in comforting and absurd ways at the same time. Could there be a reason for that? Could our minds sometimes be hijacked as palettes to paint the landscape these experiences are framed by? Maybe these stories are intentionally absurd because the beings perpetrating them then know that no one will believe the events when they are shared with others. Or there's always that third option. The purported events never took place. We must consider that. It's a skeptic's obligation. Maybe Mrs. Hingley's story is a full fabrication, the product of someone with a mental illness, or perhaps someone seeking attention through a hoax. That possibility always exists. And when we look at hers and other outlandish tales, we have to wonder why are the details so fantastic? Maybe that's the more important question. Tonight we'll ponder that, and after that, we'll dive into some of the personal legends that you folks sent in when we asked for uplifting, wondrous holiday stories. We got some great ones, and we can't wait to share them as we round out 2020 with our second to last show of the year. So get that fire going. Whether it's a real one or a screensaver, heat some hot chocolate or warmer beverage of choice, and get comfortable for a strange night of astonishing legends and listener tales. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. We come from the sky. Three purported aliens to Mrs. Jean Hingley on January 4th, 1979, shortly before the attack her artificial Christmas tree. Join us tonight for one of the more bizarre legends we've ever shared, as well as listener stories that are just right for this time of year. And we're back from the sky. <laughs> wow, that's pretty. How'd, how'd you do that? That's not my impression. That's Ryan doing his sound. Oh, he put a special it, filter on there. Well, I don't know the, how these like things work. The beginning. Yeah. Remember yeah. in the, uh, yes, yeah. of course you do. But uh, in the in the cold <laughs> open here, I was asking you before we really got into the story, like, well, uh, what do they sound like? Did, was there any report about it? It's like, well, their voices apparently came out of a box on their yeah, chest. a little box, like a Darth Vader situation, I think. It had some buttons and knobs. Of course. And, yeah, yes, of course, he didn't yes. talk through the box. His voice <laughs> came out of that weird triangle on his helmet, I think. The weird triangle, yes. But as a kid, you know what? I, I wanted to flip those toggle switches so badly. Yes, and by the way, uh, rest in peace, David Prowse, who played uh, yes. Darth Vader, not the voice, but the body, which... 
Yeah. And it's funny, James Earl Jones didn't even want to be credited as the voice of Darth Vader because he felt like uh-huh. what David Prowse was doing was really what the character was. So uh, wow. anyway. Yeah, so, that's the uh, true spirit of an actor. Yeah, right, there really you go. is. Really yeah. is. Well, uh, folks, 2020 is almost done. I, for one, mm. am not going to be sad to see it go. Uh, for those of you <laughs> that have asked, yeah. um, my grandmother is home from the hospital and improving. However, uh-huh. two more very close relatives uh, have also contracted COVID and are now in the hospital. So I'm telling you this thing and hundreds of miles apart from my grandmother, this thing is running rampant. Everybody, please take it seriously. Please be careful out there. Well, as I said, uh, back in uh, March, you don't have to be afraid, but you do have to respect it. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, obviously all this nuttiness doesn't end at midnight on December 31st. It's going to take a while to come out of this, but we will come out of it. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And, uh, well, change is the hardest thing for a human being to endure, one of them at least. And we've endured a lot of changes. And there may still be some down the pipe for us. But one of the strongest and most powerful tools human beings have is hope. And I, for one, continue to hold out hope that it's going to be so much better. As do I. Well, um, three very quick announcements before we dive in tonight. Forrest, I'm going to give this first one to you. Yes. Firstly, we wanted to share a very important distinction from listener Ethan Klopfenstein, who pointed out that the Bureau of Land Management does not control land owned by the government, but rather manages land owned by the people. That is why it's considered public access. His point was, this is the people's land managed by their elected officials, and I could not agree more. Yeah, thanks for that, Ethan. That's such a better way to put it, and uh, glad to know it's more accurate anyway. And yes. other quick news, our new design ceramic coffee mugs have just come in. So if you're looking for those, oh. head over to astonishinglegends.com and click on shop and find the merch area of our store. One quick thing, though, the holidays are crazy, especially for our team, and these mugs were a little delayed getting to us, so we're going to do our level best to get orders out in time for the holidays, but we're not guaranteeing it. So if you're counting on this to be uh, under the tree, maybe don't count on that, but it might make it, but it might not. So (laughs) please be patient. Don't wait. Yes, (laughs) as every advertisement ever says, don't wait. Don't wait. Order now. But even if you order now, you still might not get it by Christmas. Yes, well, our fulfillment guy was like, you have to tell him they might not get it by Christmas. So, so how about this? Lower your expectations. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's probably more appropriate here. And lastly, we have a very special year-end show planned for you all this year. It will be presented from a wonderful virtual holiday party at Scott's house, where we'll have a slate of guests that has to be heard to be believed, including for the first time, our dear friend, author, and the original podfather of paranormal podcasting, Jim Harold. Uh, yes, and along with Jim, we're going to have returning favorites, Mothman Prophecy screenwriter, television writer, and producer Richard Haddam, as well as prolific podcaster and amateur archaeologist and occasional story producer for Astonishing Legends, Micah Hanks. On top of those guys, we're also going to be joined by UFO expert, music connoisseur, and old friend Rob Christofferson. Not, he's not actually old, but he's been a friend no. for a long time, so then he's an right. old friend. I always wonder about that, but yes. And our very own right-hand woman and behind-the-scenes glue that holds our operations together. Tess Feifel. That episode's going to be a blast, so don't miss it. But tonight, well, tonight it's time to head back to the UK for a story that, well, on the weirdness scale, it's right up there with Sam the Sandown Clown. And after that, we're going to share some of the really cool stories that you guys sent in to us for the holidays. All right, man, where do we start with this one? It almost doesn't matter where you start with this story, because I think Mm. it makes... 
as much sense picking it up in the middle as it makes taking it from the beginning. It doesn't even have a beginning, middle, and it is so weird. It's right up there with uh, Zamfretta's story, but it's even stranger. The one that we just talked about a few weeks ago, it's even stranger than that. Before we start, I, I will say, not uh, you're going to tell us all about the details uh, in uh, in great detail, but you can use reverse psychology, I always think, because people say like, well, look, the details are too crazy. Obviously, it's made up. On the flip side of that, you could say, hey, this is too crazy to be made up. I mean, who do that? Who, who's that? I know. And I always fall into that second column. And maybe that's <laughs> confirmation bias. But I'm just like, who would make up a story? That's the dichotomy of this. You yeah. Know? I mean, people are making up crazy stories. There's no question sure, about sure. that. You know, especially if you're suffering from a mental illness or something like that, it's pretty easy to get pretty far into a story with a lot of details like this. But yeah. I think a lot of times there's hallmarks to those stories that don't necessarily all connect. Whereas right, this story right. has more of a structure to it that it does seem to all flow, but you guys are just going to have to hear it and decide for yourselves, I think. <laughs> you have to hear it. You have to see it. You have to experience all these things for yourself. And then you got to make the decision because no one can convince you otherwise. I always love the Will Rogers quote, paraphrased, I think, people aren't convinced by argument. They're convinced by observation. It's like everything else in this genre. I always say it's like the blurry, too blurry photo. Like, obviously this is fake. Look how blurry this photo is. Yeah. On the other hand, like, look, this is obviously fake. Look how sharp this is. No photo's ever that sharp. It's too crisp. I can see exactly what the detail is on this thing. You're never going to be satisfied. You'll never convince people. And to convince people or prove anything, you're wasting your time. So what it is, is an insight, a glimpse into something that might be extra-worldly, otherworldly. And I think it's just kind of interesting to take these things in, these stories, and just let it mull around. Let it rottle around in your brain and, and uh, see where it lands. All right. Well, as with any story, the first place that we start is where is the source material coming from? And the original source material for this particular story comes from the Venerable Flying Saucer Review. It's from their hmm. November-December edition, which was published in 1979. And this is an interview by a journalist for them, Eileen Morris. It's one of the strangest Christmas encounters because we're following a theme here. Remember the Christmas mm -hmm. monolith? This is a Christmas story in a weird way, just like the movie The Mothman Prophecies. <laughs> and by the way, I have a copy yeah. of this particular issue of this on the way. It's hard to find, so our sources on this are from a wide litany of blogs that have republished this story over and over and over, especially this time of year. Now, and a quick mm. note about this. The Flying Saucer Review, which we've mentioned on the show before, was founded in 1954, and then the first issue was published in 55 by former RAF, Royal Air Force number 604 squadron member and test pilot and flying instructor, Derek David Dempster, who passed away in uh, just January of 2012, actually. Now, according to Wikipedia, the squadron was initially known for its pioneering role in the development of radar-controlled night fighter operations. Wow, sounds pretty cool, night fighter. Mm, yeah, but yeah. although the Flying Saucer Review is still around today, and Dempster was one of several folks instrumental in its founding, it's notable that Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, is a long-standing subscriber. Apparently, wow. this magazine is respected enough that it's how the Royal Palace keeps tabs on the UFO phenomenon in the UK. So, you're, are you impressed? 
Well, I did watch the first season of The Crown. So watching Prince Philip get interested in flying, you know, he's going to be leading Her Majesty's Royal Air Force. He figured I should learn how to fly, right? I mean, I should understand that. And it was interesting to see him take that challenge up and get really into it. And uh, I think people who are curious about the skies above them and beyond share something. And it's funny and interesting and and, uh, kind of heartwarming that he shares that too. There's a whole long rabbit hole you could go down here with him and the Flying Saucer Review. And it's like, there's a lot of fascinating stuff there, but that's not what tonight's story is about. (laughs) Hmm. Tonight's story is about... Mrs. Hingley. So again, this is originally from the November-December 1979 version of the Flying Saucer Review. I'd also like to give a quick shout out to my good friend, Matt Drew, the curator of mysteries for sending this story our way. And That's uh, right. Yeah, because I had not heard of it until he did that. He sends me stuff daily and there's a there's a <laughs> good portion of it that I have not heard of before. So thanks for that, Matt. Talk about uh, deep dives. He really digs this stuff up and it's amazing what he finds. Yes, he does. All right. And there are some details for this story that are pieced together from a few blog entries as well, including one at a website called timefordisclosure.com. Uh, and that one is entitled Mrs. Hingley and the Christmas Aliens by blogger Nancy Timms. And a uh, she's apparently a former DOD employee. She has a very interesting blog there. Yeah, That's interesting. Well, there you mm -hmm. go. Flying Saucer Review, former test pilot, RAF respected uh, pilot from there, Prince Philip. Yes. I'm sure they've all seen some weird stuff. Yeah, well, it it brings to mind some of the stuff that's been in the news lately about uh, Israel being afraid that uh, (laughs) Trump was going to spill the beans on the aliens being here. Disclosure. But uh, again, that's not for tonight's show. You know what? There's still time. There's still time. Imminent disclosure. that would happen. Well, Jean Hingley and her husband, Cyril, lived in a council house or public housing in a little town called Rally Regis. This is a a small town and historical parish established in the year 1173. That's a long time ago, right? Yeah. Uh, It's in the West Midlands region of England, just two hours south of Pontefract, which you may remember from our September 2018 episodes on the Black Monk of Pontefract. I digress. Well, not enough digression for my tastes, sir. (laughs) Well, Cyril Hingley worked in a cement plant, it would seem, and on the day that this story took place, January 4th, 1979, a little bit after Mm -hmm. Christmas, but the tree was still up, he left for work, as he always did in the morning. So apparently Jean Hingley is looking out the window. It's a little dark outside still, Mm -hmm. and she sees a light in the backyard. She assumes that Cyril has left a light on in their carport, so she goes outside to turn it off. Leaving her back door open as she wanders out there, she discovers that the carport light is not on, but there's still a glow in the backyard that was orangish in color. So she's trying to figure out what's creating this light when she hears what she described as a z z z sound. I hope you enjoyed my impression of Mrs. Hinchley. I did. And uh, no sooner does that sound start than three beings floated past her and went right into her house. Didn't even ask if it was okay. Now, Mrs. Hinchley said they were floating about a foot above the ground, and she could see that they had wings and good old classic spaceman fishbowl glass helmets over their heads. They didn't ask if they could enter the house? Didn't ask. Just went right in. (laughs) Floated right in there. She couldn't see any ears, and she also said they didn't have eyebrows either, and that their skin was extremely pale, and wait for it, they had glittering black 
eyes. Yeah, but these sound more friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what she's talked about here, uh, that's described quite a bit. The floating Uh off the ground about a foot. The look of them with the helmets and wings that they don't really need. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you even have Good setup so far. Yeah. Well, why does Mothman have wings? He just jumps into the air and it happens. That's true. That's true. Well, at this point, she is scared to death and she has a dog. Uh, Here comes another dog. This always takes me back to poor old... uh, Snowball and the Delphus oh, Ring. No. This dog was a German shepherd named Hobo, and apparently he was acting super strange, like he'd been given some kind of intoxicant, and he was wobbling around as the beings floated around inside her house, and then he collapsed on the floor just staring, which would oh, scare boy. me to death if that happened to my yeah. dog. Yeah. Before too long, Mrs. Hingley's disposition seems to shift from fear to one of safety and comfort. Does this sound uh, like paranormal apathy, Forrest, or something similar? Just kind of like... I a, wouldn't say apathy, but a calming. It's like with a dog, it's just like... It's yeah. just like, you just have a nap there. Bobo. Have a nap. Just take it easy. Take a load off. Don't get excited. You, madam, nothing to be afraid of here. We're going to give you a little something to ease that tension. Mother's little helper. Yeah, well, that's what she said. She said, quote, I felt as if I were lifted up. I felt as if I were a different person, as though I was in heaven. Although I was still at home, I seemed to float into the lounge, end quote. At this point, as relaxed and, uh, you know, hanging out in heaven as she was, she noticed that these three little things had commenced attacking her small artificial Christmas tree, which was still left up for Christmas. (laughs) Dear. They they were shaking it and messing around with it. However, this eventually lost their interest, or so it would seem, and they graduated to just floating around her house, touching and examining pretty much everything they could get their tiny hands on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mrs. Hingley decided it was time to have a conversation, so she said, quote, Three of you and one of me, what are you going to do? What do you want with me? End quote. Well, according to her, they started messing around with some buttons on their chests, and some <laughs> beeping sounds started, followed by voices that came out of their chests, not their mouths. We shall not harm you. She then asked them where they were from, and they said, We come from the sky, and we hate this tree. <laughs> then they, yeah, well, they didn't say that, but they did start no. attacking the Christmas tree again. I, of course, I'm thinking of uh, <laughs> Steve Martin <laughs> and the jerk. He yes. hates these cans. He hates these cans. Yes. He's it's so mad at before, these cans. But like, yes. When somebody attacks something, it, it seems, uh, why? Why are you doing this? Like, yeah. What's wrong with the tree? Oh, he doesn't like plastic. They don't like plastic trees. Yeah. Maybe well, that's it. Being a Christian, Mrs. Hingley explained to them that we put trees up at Christmas in honor of Jesus. And they told her they knew all about Jesus. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, she then pointed to a newspaper she had, which showed a list of folks who had recently been made lords. And when she pointed that out to them, they replied, there is only one Lord. They're religious aliens. Yeah, Uh, she she says they then started jumping on her couch like Tom Cruise, at which point she yelled at them, (laughs) be careful. And they stopped. You're going to ruin the plastic coverings. Having broken the ice, (laughs) she says she began to feel happy and thought of them as having friendly eyes. And she told them, nice to see you. And all three replied from their voice boxes at the same time. Nice. Now they're going in and out of all of her rooms again, touching and grabbing everything, especially alcohol. Okay, then. And like any self-respecting hostess to holiday visitors, she offered them a drink. But since they had to drive, they only asked for water. <laughs> That's a long way. Sure. Yeah, I yeah. get that. Yeah. You got to be careful. You know, so One for the road. One might wonder how a floating space alien with a fishbowl helmet would drink water, and you'd be right to do so. Mrs. Hingley said they somehow levitated the glasses to them, and when they raised the glasses up, there was a blinding light. And when the glasses came down, the water was gone. 
Okay. I'm uh, with that. I love, yeah. I, yeah, I love how on board you are with this. They're pouring the water into, uh, you know, it's not like they had to punch a hole into the glass. Well, and here's my thing. I mean, based yeah. on how they're behaving, my idea was that the bright light was a distraction and it blinded oh. her and then they dumped the water on the carpet. <laughs> Well, that's, now that seems kind of rude. It's They're like right. a magic trick. Yeah, it's just a yeah. diversion. Well, these beings went on to tell Mrs. Hingley that they had been to Australia, New Zealand, and America. And they added, quote, we come down here to try to talk to people, but they don't seem to be interested. To which she replied, why are you visiting plain old me instead of the queen or something? And they said to her, you are a lady. Well, that's very nice also. Yes, it is. But there's some themes here. Isn't it an ongoing? I feel like it's an ongoing message. Maybe not with Orfeo Angelucci, but similar stories yeah. where it's like, we're trying to tell you, but you're not listening or people aren't paying attention. But the other no, thing about this. That, that is you, apathy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But the other thing about this that really captures my imagination is that there seems to be an idea, like what I see in this, uh, in the people not being interested in air quotes, right. is there's almost an idea that like, if you're not ready for it, you're not going to see them. They're not in our uh, yeah. normal state of reality. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, some people don't see anything, but you're right. I think to a large degree, we always talk about this. Uh, is it Christian Rapolo, uh, the man cursed with seeing UFOs? Yeah. He tries to point something out in the sky on the horizon, and people are like, eh, I'd rather just eat my waffle cone. Yeah. So it's not totally their fault. I mean, there are a lot of people that I've met them have zero interest in any of this. Right. Not so much that they don't believe in it. It's just like, well, you know, I got stuff to do. So they have their own daily concerns and that's fine for them. And then there's some people who refuse to believe in it on logical grounds, like, oh, that's poppycock. So they don't, uh, they won't even look up. And then, like you said, there's people who they may not be ready, so they actually can't see anything yeah and then there are people who seem to be chosen to see things sounds like mrs hingley may be one of those well apparently after continuing to chat about everything from politics to religion mrs hingley decided having taken to them that she should offer mm. them some of her mince pies now i don't know if you know <laughs> what a mince pie is i want to read this wikipedia yeah. definition of a mince pie kind of an old-fashioned thing but sure yeah so. yeah a mince pie also mince meat pie in new england and fruit mince pie in australia and new zealand is a sweet pie of english origin filled with a mixture of dried fruits and spices called mince meat that's in quotes that is traditionally served during the christmas season in much of the English-speaking world. Its ingredients are traceable to the 13th century when returning European crusaders brought with them Middle Eastern recipes containing meats, fruits, and spices. These contain the Christian symbolism of representing the gifts delivered to Jesus by the biblical magi. Mince pies at Christmastide were traditionally shaped in an oblong shape to resemble a manger and were often topped with a depiction of the Christ child. Oh. So, yeah, I was today years old when I learned that minced meat doesn't actually, at this point, have any meat in it. Now, <laughs> hold on there. I have a question for you. Yeah. I thought there were versions of mincemeat pie that uh, contained venison and some game meats. Well, maybe there that are. that was also traditional. Yeah. But this says fruit. Well, that's Mince. a variation of that. I'm going to tell you something for nothing. I don't want this. I don't want to try it. I don't, <laughs> this is not my jam. I was about to say, you and my dad, and the reason I bring this up is that <laughs> I, all growing up, I'd heard of this. It's like, hey, dad, can we get a mincemeat pie? Can we get grandma to make one? He's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, because when he was, uh, I think a, maybe a teenager in his 20s or later, uh, his sister, my aunt, tried to make a mincemeat pie. 
Yeah. And that's where I believe that it had venice in it that makes sense to me i'll have to ask okay but that makes more sense but i hate to bring it up because it just the green just fills his face he still never got over it he's like oh my god i was so sick that pie (laughs) made me so so violently ill he's like i can't i will never have that again oh my and uh but that's i did not know this when i when i wrote this out i'm so glad to hear this story because you can think like yes you can actually vegetables and uh i don't know about fruits but Certainly, vegetables can give you E. coli and some awful gastric distress and uh, be dangerous. Yeah. So the mincemeat you had had meat in it? I don't believe so. I think okay. that's an old tradition. It may be too hard to for most people get to so make. Many emails and mincemeat I know. It's okay, though. I want to see autos. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let us know your experiences. Well, anyway, Mrs. Hingley brought three mince pies to her little floating visitors who attacked her right. Christmas tree, and she described their hands as magnetic as they lifted them off the tray. And uh, I guess presumably there would have been a bright light and disappearing mincemeat pie, except that she interrupted them by lighting a cigarette. And when she did that, it freaked them out so bad, they bailed super hard out the back door, taking the three mincemeat pies with well, them. So she now, she felt awesome. horrible. So now she's following them out to their ship, which she said was a, quote, orange-colored glowing thing, end quote, yeah. that was eight to ten feet long and four feet high with several round portholes. Sounds like it could be the same company that made the 1966 Lantern 3000 that Indrid <laughs> Cold parked, or floated yeah. rather, on the side right. of the road when he flipped Woody Derenberger's noodle in the series of events surrounding the first appearances of the Mothman in West Virginia. Anyway, wow. in addition to those, it had a scorpion tail Ooh. and a wheel on top. That's interesting. Speaking of which, this encounter apparently made her eyes sore for a week. It's a dead match for Klieg or actinic conjunctivitis that Mothman experiences often contracted. Her eyes got sore. Welder's, yeah, welder's eye. Yeah, welder's eye. So she was also sick for several days. And on top of that, her TV stopped working after the visit. And any cassette tapes the beings touched had been ruined. Degaussed, hands I guess. were magnetic. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the mince pie aliens retreated into their orange floating submarine, <laughs> and it flashed its lights twice as if to say goodbye before floating uh. back up into the sky, taking three pieces of her dishware with them. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I don't know that. Return, she didn't say this yeah. in her story, but if I was no, her, I'd be irritated. <laughs> That's only common courtesy. It's like, uh, and of course, yes, now I have her sound like uh, somebody from Pulp the Fract. Mm. It's like, you got to turn that top of that, are you? <laughs> somebody gives you a dish, you got to bring the... the yeah, you got to bring it back. Don't, At least don't bring wash it, back it and dirty. bring it back the next yeah, time. Yeah, with a big crust on it. So uh, that seems only plausible. But then again, they, they're going a long ways. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this is the smoking. Was it the flame? There's something about the smoke. It's like, oh my God, woman, no, that, this is that's carcinogenic. What are you doing? We got to get out of here. We're taking the pies. Yeah. Yeah. And they bolted out of there, and then she felt bad. So uh, it's what I got to ask you, though. Yeah, none of these things usually ever go where there's pleasant side effects. It could be a pleasant encounter. This wasn't that bad, it seems. They seem friendly, but there's uncomfortable side effects. Yeah. So knowing that, Scott, let me ask you, would you uh, be okay with a, a short visitation like that? It's like, yeah, you're going to be sick for a few days. Your Van Halen cassette tapes are going to be all erased. I can handle that. Okay. I I mean, I can handle the conjunctivitis. I can handle erase tapes. I'm not happy with the dog being subdued. Like, Uh, yeah, I know. But I guess apparently after they left, Hobo, the German shepherd, popped up. Yeah. 
snapped out oh. of his stupor, began looking around in the backyard for the beings. <laughs> At that point, Mrs. Hinchley noticed there was a large depression in the ground. She went on to say that she felt warm and happy and even blessed by the visit. Nevertheless, her neighbor said, uh, yeah, right, you should call the police. So yeah. <laughs> she did and reportedly told them uh, she had had visitors with wings, to which right. they purportedly replied, birds? And she said, no, men with wings. And then the police said, why don't you go and have your hair done and tell the girls about it? <laughs> She's well, so, well, of yeah. course. Yeah, they're not taking her. Seriously, also being a little mean, and this was before the Me Too era. So nevertheless, they did send some officers around who had absolutely no idea how to investigate this encounter. But mm. they did measure, apparently, an eight by four foot impression in the ground in her backyard. And again, wait for it, they took soil samples. Yeah, okay. I hate soil samples. One of the things yeah. I've learned from the show is to hate soil samples because they never come back. There are no results ever. They're usually lost in the mail or they come back with some kind of result, but the sample itself is lost forever. If there's a soil sample going away, you know yeah. that the whole story is going to fall flat evidence-wise. <laughs> well, if you're looking for soil samples to solve it all, quite possibly, sure. But there are some times when soil samples yield weird results. The Delphus ring. Yeah. With all the uh, barkeeper's helpers. Ajax, helper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, with the oxalic acid in it as a residue. And as we said, uh, that's a byproduct of uh, making rhubarb. That's how the inventor found out that this might be good for cleansing his pots after he made the rhubarb, another pie, delicious pie, mm -hmm. rhubarb and strawberry, one of my mm -hmm. favorites. Uh, his pots were always shinier. But what I was going to say one time, a, a few times, where soil samples are really interesting, crop circles. Yeah where you get those iron ferrules, these little tiny nodules deep down. And, and one day we're going to cover that subject. I'm very excited about that. But, yeah, yeah. Some, but you're right. I, I get it. It's kind of what you said earlier in the cold open, perhaps. The closer you look at this phenomenon, the more it leads you astray, the more weird, but also banal it gets simultaneously sometimes. It's so out there, but the closer you look, the more nothing you get. Hi, I'm Jason, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. Well, most of the blog entries on this story end with her saying, sadly, that some people have made jokes about her, but people that <laughs> yeah. know her know she was telling yeah. the truth. Now, Mrs. Hinchley did say that she had eventually asked them if she could tell people they had dropped by, and they told her, quote, yes, we have been here before. We shall come again. Everybody will go to heaven. There are beautiful colors there. Mm. Now, I freaked out here because there's beautiful colors. <laughs> we're coming right back to hello, and I am all colors, Sam. Why is the colors? Right. Colors are always coming up. Sam, the Sandown Clown, was 1973. It was just six years earlier and further away than Pontefract in the opposite direction, about four right. hours by car, right. is the Isle of Wight where Sandown is. What's with the mention of colors? And also, mm. by the way, there was just a monolith that popped up on the Isle of Wight in the Sandown territory. So we got the monolith. Wait, wait recently? Oh, yeah. Like a few days ago. No, you should have told me about that. I'm I telling you right now. Aware. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's there's good. monoliths that's everywhere. Good. I can't tell you about every monolith. Come on. Are you kidding me? There's one uh, popping up every five could, minutes. You could try. Yeah. So. You want my half arsed opinion on this? On the monolith on the Isle of Wight? No, the colors. Oh, no, yes, I, yes, the, yes, the, I do. The, what is it? The what monolith is, it? is beaming out free Wi-Fi. Yeah. 
you're probably not going to get much of an answer. Yes. With that. Yeah, that's a good point. Here's my thinking, though. If you're asking about colors, because I have thought about this, independent, irrespective of uh, tonight's story and your telling of it and your uh, astonishment and uh, astoundment of why colors are important, you look at the common factors of a lot of these stories with UFO sightings, experiencers, abductees, sightings in general, and a lot of it, you know, what's one common thing about all these craft? Not all the time, but a very common element with these sightings and with the the physical nature of these crafts themselves. Light. Yeah. Look at Terry Lovelace, this thing beamed down light. And and just picture this too, like you said, it wasn't as, uh, you've seen obviously when you turn a beam of light that's very powerful off into a long distance, you can almost... I mean, it's very quick, of course. It's traveling at the speed of light. Yeah. But you can almost see the the beam kind of shoot out a long yeah. distance uh, in front of you. Yeah. What he said was, it wasn't like that. The sensation or the impression that he got was that it was just on. It's just on. Yeah. And it was solid and it was narrow and it was intense. Yeah. And uh, they were of different colors. When you look at the colored lights and all these craft, are they just decorations that they think it's fanciful? Are they intergalactic turn signal colors that right. you have to display? <laughs> you can confirm this, Scott, like on, on ships and aircraft, left port is green, yes. starboard is red. Red, right, returning. Yep. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And so that's standardized. Is it something like that? Well, no, I don't believe so. But there is something that is common to all of it. Like I said uh, before, energy is the currency of the universe with beings, entities, other aliens, whatever it is, we all need energy to get around. It's what we crave. That's why those things are jumping on your chest at night to scare the crap out of you. They love that energy. They love the misery. It's all about energy. And if you're an alien or some kind of higher being, whatever spiritual form you are, uh, from wherever you are, light seems to also be a currency of that, the photon, the transmission of light. They're somehow able to manipulate light to get it to do whatever they need it to do in very advanced, unknowable ways. But it also has something to do with the temperature range, the color range, the vibration, the frequency of light. Otis, I'm trying to think just off the top of my head, it was a famous... UFO story, I'm trying to think of the last name, but it was described as a UFO craft that was built... Otis Carr. There you go. That's yeah. it. C-A-R-R. Yeah. Uh, built by humans from alien plans, but they said it glowed ultraviolet blue, I uh -huh. think, or purple. And so light, uh, the byproduct was a brilliant ultraviolet light, and it had something to do with that. So, but I'm just, yes, these are all not true stories. <laughs> We've said that in the cold open a good portion of them are going to be made up for whatever reason. But some of them, again, they don't all have to be false. Just a few of them have to be true. One has to be true yeah. for this thing to be a real thing. And if light has something to do with it, then colored light and changing colored light seems to be significant in the operation of whatever the heck they're doing. And I, I would doubt that it's just for decoration. Yeah, that's a good So, point. yeah, it's just the frequencies of light. That's why there's always, you, a lot of times, colors associated with it. So that's nice. But they promised to her, like, yes, uh, heaven is real. You'll be there one day. And there's all kinds of colors for you to enjoy. But what does that mean? Yeah, and that's the thing. The, the talk about Christianity, in a way, yeah. to me, 
it's kind of like, is it food time? It's a little bit like, see, we know about your planet. <laughs> well, here but- is something to make you feel comfortable. Here is your belief that we know about, and we're going to talk to you about it. We've said this early on, though. I, I think way back when, when we, maybe the Fermi paradox, when we first started talking about aliens, uh, yeah. one thing that's curious to me and and others who study this is what is their origin story? Who do they believe in? Who is their superior being? Yeah. Even if they created us, who created them? What are their rules they have to uh, conduct themselves by? Yeah. What are the things that they believe in? Yeah. Zargon the Great, he's the real Lord. Right. He also looks a lot like Jesus. I guess my point is, and yes, I'm being flip, is that uh, you don't know what their quote-unquote religion is. And I think it would be a mistake, again, if you're going to give this any inch of credibility, just some leeway in belief is that you can't assume that something doesn't make sense with them. Yeah. And something that might be just as spiritual to them. Like it's that uh, spiritual quality that's ineffable to them that they can't get a grasp on, but it's what they believe in. You don't know. Yeah. We just, but always we assume that like when there's aliens and they're really advanced, like they're not going to believe in religion. That's silly. Yeah. It's okay for us, but they're technological. They, they don't need religion. How do we know? Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. There's a lot of stuff that's interesting about the story. So obviously a lot more mm-hmm. stuff going on in the UK than I expected yeah. when we started this show. I love that this story takes place between Pontefract and Sandown, uh, which manifested in 1966 and 73 respectively. So this is like a hat trick of uh, yeah. <laughs> really weird stuff. I mean, Pontefract's yeah, different. Yeah. That's a haunting. But the Pontefract's right up there with, you know, Jeff the Mongoose and the Bell Witch. That's There's some serious stuff going on there. And then you have... And I do start to wonder, the more we look at stuff, if all of these things are connected. And if there's a connection between, I guess, you know, if there's a, there's a lot of people that want to believe that you have these corridors of, of happenings and over here's the UFOs. And we've talked about this before, Mm -hmm. like the cryptids versus is Bigfoot interdimensional alien or just an unknown primate or doesn't exist at all, all that kind of stuff. But you come back to Skinwalker Ranch and the other places that you looked at where all kinds of things are going on and you start to wonder if it's all bleeding together in some weird way. And the next question that comes after that is, you know, not to sound like somebody at the end of a college party, but like, right, right. what is reality? <laughs> you know, because the more you look at it, the more it seems like it's all bleeding together. Like it's really amorphous. Yeah, man, that is the big question. One of the biggest questions, and certainly one of the biggest questions for us is mere mortals here on Earth. And it reminds me of the John Keel quote, the unknown is out there. The universe does not exist as we think it exists. And we don't exist as we think we exist. Mm-hmm. I hope you really said that. That's just it's a quote yeah, that's often attributed to him. Some but... of the best quotes. What would and uh, my, one of my favorites is whatever's on the back of his business card is like uh, not an expert on anything at all. I think it is <laughs> so great. right. Not an expert. And that was uh, I just saw a documentary that had it showed his card on there. Yeah, and uh, he really did have that early on. I think it said on the front. I think it said photographer. Right. And uh, maybe writer or author, but photographer, that's what he was uh, also going around doing on the back said, just not an expert. So, you know, don't bother me with your questions. Uh, I can tell you what I've experienced, but I don't know what it means. And I'm always wary of somebody who can or purports to tell you they know what it means or what is or is not possible. But no, that's that's the great question is like, how does this all tie in? And uh, as we've also learned through all of this is that, it has a lot to do with perspective and perception and 
our belief system and what we can see and what we can't see, something you mentioned at the beginning of the story, that all has a lot to do with it. And I think there's a spiritual aspect to it. That I did not believe. You asked me uh, years ago, maybe this year, you asked me how my needle has moved. And I would say, I didn't used to think that, but now I do think that there is a spiritual metaphysical component to all this. You know, this show would be nothing without you. I, I can't make these kinds of observations that you make. Uh, these are crap. Crap observations, no, I say. It's much better informed yeah. than anything I could say. All I, I'm only here to tease these things out of you, but I... <laughs> oh, I see. Right. Was, as an old foam trucker's cap used to say on the front of it, if you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. <laughs> so well, uh, there is a coda... <laughs> So there is a coda on this story, uh, which yeah. uh, not to make a uh, not too thinly veiled reference to our friend Rob Christopherson's podcast, The Coda. That's something you should check out if you like music. But uh, oh, there's yes. a coda uh-huh. to this story. Are you ready? Yeah. Uh, two days after the mincemeat aliens bailed on Mrs. Hingley, her artificial Christmas tree fully disappeared from her house. <laughs> <laughs> hey, those things are expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It apparently turned up sometime later, shredded on her front lawn <laughs> with the ornaments gone. Oh. Now, it did occur to me that this could have just been Hobo the yeah, Shepherd. Uh, with a good that. opportunity. Yeah, he uh, was like, she left. Rid of that tree. Yeah, yeah I'm done yeah. with this tree. I mean, and, and, you know, and it did occur to me too. All right, she's like, for some reason, she gave away or allowed three mince pies to be stolen or disappeared. There was some damage to the tree. And she made this whole story up as a cover story because Cyril would have been really mad at her. I don't know. (laughs) I'm trying to figure it out. Because, I mean, the details here are crazy. Maybe she has a great imagination. But it's quite a story. It's quite a story. And uh, Well, uh, it's like uh, Rob K. covered the uh, the guy receiving the space pancakes. Yes. Now, that's not Falcon Lake. It was, no. uh, I believe, is also like in we Canada. Mentioned, or... We mentioned these space pancakes in literally every episode of our show. That, They're uh, funny. They're anyway. a touchstone. It's like, and now I'm going to say alien mincemeat pies are a touchstone. And, <laughs> and the fake tree, it's just like, well, that's... Yeah, you're going to bring that back? I mean, the, the tree is kind of expensive. Uh, yeah. When you took all my ornaments. Not as much back then. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, and then some of those are heirlooms. Yeah. But they don't know. You, you understand, like, that's also maybe part of it. Let's go with uh, this being totally true, and then an alien society is just like, uh, oh, do they value these? Well, they're just yeah. cheap glass. You can go down to Target and get some more. They don't really uh, get why these things are precious to us, and they want to study them. And, and maybe they decorated the tree themselves, or it's like Q. Remember from uh, Star Trek and Next Generation. Uh, the yes. yes, Next Generation. The Enterprise is now a Christmas ornament. Yeah, because he yeah. thought it'd be a gas to <laughs> to place so them I, on a tree. And I, I need to go back and watch those now because I, I really want to. I think it'd be easy to see in hindsight what the writers were doing at that point, making fun of themselves. <laughs> Or the genre. <laughs> right. But by the way, I love Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that is our crazy anchor story. That's a new term. I, I like it. Uh, yeah. I love it, actually. Yeah. It's a good anchor story for tonight. No one got hurt. Like I said, there's some uncomfortable side effects. Some things were broken, but, you know, any good holiday party can boast that. Yeah. Uh, you'll be hungover for days. <laughs> some of the more outrageous <laughs> ones. And things got broken by guests. Yes, indeed. The dog ate uh, a jar of somebody's edibles. You know, whatever the, the case is... Worse things have happened, but it was really interesting. And then uh, what I liked about it is that, yes, it's a funny holiday story. It's goofy. It's silly. There's uh, there's pie involved. And I, I do love pie. 
and uh, there's a thrashing of a Christmas tree. But the way she described it is interesting. You would say like, well, she's trying to pump up that aliens are cool and we shouldn't fear them. And this, this was a good experience. Whereas many people explain being terrified, tortured, experimented on in a way, hating it. And uh, in this case, though, she described it as heavenly. Very yeah, pleasant, that's right? True. That's true. So it was yeah. a good thing. It was a good story. It's uplifting. Yeah. Well, that is just the amuse-bouche for tonight because we Ooh. have really got some great stories from you guys. We asked for holiday stories, uplifting stories, kind of a different sort of strange series of parameters for stories that would be fun mm-hmm. to share in December. And you really delivered. We got some great stuff here. And so now we're going to transition into sharing those with you. It's time to really settle down, turn out the lights, dial that gas fire up or your screensaver <laughs> to maximum brightness. <laughs> Another real or Duraflame log on the fire. Yes. Invite all your friends over by Zoom. Let's get into this. Uh, Forrest, you want to kick this off? Yes, you're absolutely <laughs> right, man. And thank you. Before we begin tonight's portion of the show featuring stories from our listeners, we want to express our tremendous thanks and gratitude for everybody that graciously took the time and effort to send us their really wonderful anecdotes. As with the stories some of you sent in for our Ouija Stories episode, we received so many great submissions that it's just not possible to include them all. So please don't feel bad if we didn't include your story in tonight's show. We might try to round them all up later for a Patreon offering if we could find the time. So yeah, more than a few had to be cut for time. And frankly, Scott was going to lose his ever-loving mind if this episode came out to be four hours. (laughs) But seriously, as we always do with a general call for submissions, we had a really difficult time trying to pare it all down and weave a flow from the stories and maybe a motif. But we think tonight's offerings are a great sampling of the different types and scenarios that came to us. And it's interesting that an organic and natural theme emerged. So see if you can tell what that is as we go along. Now, a lot of the stories were quite personal, and we know those are not easy to share, but we'd like to think we're all friends here. I'd also like to think that our personal goal to offer a small glimmer of hope, a feeling of love for the human spirit, and a ray of warm light in this darkest time of a dark year was achieved a little with sharing these stories amongst friends. Hmm. Okay, enough of my Hallmark moment. Let's get on with these stories. That's good. I'm getting all teary-eyed. We haven't even started yet. <laughs> yeah, th- that may be happening. Uh, but you're not going to tell anybody about that, right? If that no, not start at all. To, uh, no. missed up. Okay, very good. Well, this first story out of the gate is a nice, short, sweet one. I thought it would be a good one to kick us off here because it's about a young Mr. William Peck seeing something when he was a kid on Christmas Eve, like we all hoped as kids that believed in Santa Claus except it wasn't quite. And when you first hear the description, maybe it might sound scary, but just listen to this because it turns out to be something quite wonderful. Hey, Astonishing Legends. My name is William Peck. I'm 28 years old, currently residing in San Antonio, Texas, and I have a holiday story for y'all. It takes place when I was fairly young, living with my parents in San Diego, California in a small two-bedroom apartment. We had just set up our Christmas decorations for that year, and I remember our Christmas tree being particularly bright because we had just bought a bunch of brand new lights for it. The story takes place when I wake up in the middle of the night to use the restroom. I get up, the lights are all out, except the Christmas tree in the living room. When I finish doing my business, I turn 
to go back to my bed and I see someone standing at the entrance of my kitchen and the person or figure was shimmering like a bunch of stars in the night sky and it had its arms out like it was asking for a hug or to embrace me. I was frozen. I didn't know what I was looking at, if it was a ghost, because I knew what those were at the time. And I was a deer caught in headlights. But the moment I blinked, it disappeared, it vanished. Now after that day, I never saw that figure again. But what I do remember very distinctly about it is that it kind of reminded me of the Virgin Saint Guadalupe. It just had that warmth and familiarity about it. And I believe that was the very first time I had an encounter with a ghost. William, thanks so much for sending that story in. Uh, it's really inspiring. I love the idea of it. It's almost like a tear in the space-time fabric, <laughs> and you can see these stars, but it's, it's the outline is humanoid. Yeah, yeah it's full yeah, of stars. Of- but the other thing is, <laughs> having just done the siren call of Hungry Ghosts, I now question everything that you experience along these lines. So <laughs> I'm like, what if it just looked nice, but it wasn't really? I have an answer for that for yeah. personally and for everyone else. Come on. I, of course I do. One, it's a different type of thing, okay? You're talking about messages coming through a medium, somebody who is a conduit, and then you don't know about that voice. This is visual here. We've come across these stories quite a bit by now, haven't we, where people see something and they're not sure what to make of it at first, and then people hearing these stories like, oh my gosh, that is the the scariest thing. I would hate to see that. Because then as the person hearing the story wonders, oh, is that good or bad? I don't want to see anything bad. I always say, go by the feeling, because I think that's one thing that cannot be covered up completely. If you are attuned, if you open those feelings up and you really want to know, and you just don't try and shove this out of your mind, I think you get a sense of whether this thing is good or bad, or maybe neutral. Well, so then your implication there is that in Joe Fisher's case with Siren Call, when he was dealing with his, you know, who we thought might have been a a departed lover from a long time ago, he thought he was having good feelings there. But you think maybe down in his heart he knew it wasn't real? Possibly. What I'm saying, though, is that experience is not a visceral presence one. You know what I'm saying? As far as I know from the book, the spirit of his long lost soulmate wasn't in the room with him. And he got, oh my gosh, I feel the love, man. This is real. And then like, wait a minute, what's she saying? He's getting messages from somebody else through somebody else. That's my point about this. There's a a separation there in that they may be truthful statements. You don't know, but it's not a experienced in the room with you type of feeling. And like we said with Strange Intruders, these things, and it's believed by people who who study demonology and uh, these other uh, strange critters from other places, that they can mimic quite a bit. And maybe the rule is that they can't do it perfectly. So there's always a tell. He's a poker term. Do you think William's story, the time of year, is just a coincidence, possibly? Or do you think it's somehow related to the holidays? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we talked about this uh, before with Krampus. It's that thin time. Certainly, traditionally, the ancients believed the darkest time of the year, the spirits come out. 
It's the thin time. The veils are lifted. The dead come to speak with us. The barriers are down a little bit. In this case, though, what stood out to me, though, was the uh, the lights on the Christmas tree being very bright. Yeah. And then maybe this thing taking yeah. that brightness or reflecting it, but in a good way. So in this case, like I said, if this thing was awful, I think he would have felt it as if you see somebody and suddenly their eyes turn black. It's like, okay, that wasn't a, a hearty, give me a hug kind of feeling. So in all these cases, I say, if you're confronted with something, go by the feeling you get. All right. Well, so the next story we have here is another very short one uh, coming up from Anna Milligan. What about this one, Forrest? These next two actually uh, say to me that we can often get messages, nice, lovely loving messages from past relatives and friends and people we care about if you're willing to accept them and be open and notice them. But they could be small things too. And you could say, well, that was just a coincidence. But is it? Hi, Scott and Forrest. My name is Anna Milligan, and I love your show, and I have a holiday story for you. My father passed away in October of 2006. A few weeks later, my mom was at an antique store shopping for a teacup for a Christmas gift exchange. She found a teacup for the exchange and then saw one with red roses on it. My dad would always get my mom red roses for their anniversary and for her birthday. So she had to get that teacup. She went to go pay for the teacups and the cashier asked if she wanted them wrapped up. The cashier picked up the red rose teacup and opened a newspaper to wrap it in. She opened it up to my dad's obituary. It was a nice sign for my mom from my dad. Thank you. Oh, I love stories like this. I had an aunt who <laughs> loved stories like this. Yeah. These ones stick in your mind. It's like a Paul Harvey kind of story. I, I really right. love it. And a lot of you folks are going to have no idea who he is. Just look him up, find him. He's got to be on YouTube. <laughs> Just some of the most yeah. amazing radio there ever was. But I've gone back and forth since we started this show. I used to be like, how can we prove this was a message? And, you know, we got to analyze all this. <laughs> right. So there's that part of me that's like, what's the statistical likelihood of that <laughs> obituary, that yeah. page, that coming up there? Because a rose, frankly, that's a pretty common sure. gesture of love and friendship. And so there's that part of it. But the obituary, I mean, come on. And it's so quite a coincidence. It is, is it really a coincidence. I've always wished that we had uh, a consultant in our group, and maybe we do, forgive me if you're already in there and I don't know it, who was a statistical analysis expert. <laughs> Who could say, all right, well, mathematically, how many papers were in the area? How many pages of the paper were the obituaries? How many obituaries were in the paper? You know, it's like, are we talking about right. New York City or are we talking about Lizard Lake, right. North Carolina? So there's <laughs> all that stuff that goes into it. But just yeah. the fact that she took it and got it in her hand and looked down and and it had the rose and it was the teacup and, and it was his obituary. That's some pretty powerful stuff, I think. You have to factor in the other pieces of meaning the fact that it was a rose and that the husband always bought the roses for the mom. Mm -hmm. It had a lot of meaning that in itself. She's like, that's it. That's the cup. I got to get this one. And then boom. Now, here's my question for you, though, very briefly. This may have been one of the very first things we recorded for the podcast ever years ago. Uh, it was a story about the Titanic and a friend of Scott's and his wife, their family had some meaning with a, let's say, a person that was directly involved with the Titanic. We need to finish that show. I forgot. We need to finish that, that one of these can. days. We need to, I know. For That's many, a, that many was years. A very interesting <laughs> episode. Yeah. And he would it come is, back but, on and do a follow-up. I know. So. Right. And and not to give anything away, but yeah. they go to a Titanic exhibit and get a piece of information that as in this case is like, 
whoa, that blew them away. It's like connected to a deceased relative. Yeah, I'll say that. It is so crazy a coincidence that that seems very unlikely to have happened. And, yeah. And then so yeah. we're thinking like, okay, did that spirit, if if you're talking about aportation, did that spirit stick that card in so when it came up and they took their ticket, that's the one they got? Yeah. Was the obituary in the newspaper manipulated in the stack of newspapers for the cashier to grab that sheet to wrap that rose cup in. Are we living in a sim universe and the grand puppeteer just picked yeah. a button that said, mess with this one's mind? That's a lot of buttons, though. It's one button in, in the sims. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, you know, it's like, hey, I know people that used to build houses for sims and put the sims inside of them and then take right. away all the doors. So it's <laughs> like, <laughs> then you do wonder if somebody is trying to send a message, are they able to manipulate materials to make that happen? You know what I'm saying? Because a message was sent here is that, yeah, and the message is, I love you. And if I were alive, I would send you a rose. And maybe also I want you to know I'm okay. Uh, absolutely. So is, is that happening? Yeah. And the, and the version of me that's six years into our show now, or five or six or wherever we're at is a different version from when we started. I choose to see that story as a definite heartwarming message. Yeah. So what can you tell us about this next one from Amy V? You could say it involves a coincidence of sorts, but one that's pretty specific and has a tremendous amount of meaning, personal meaning for Amy. In 2009, my mom passed away from pancreatic cancer. For most of her adult life, she wore these two little gold lapel pins every single day, praying hands and a little angel. She wore them every day for years without fail. And when anyone would comment on them, she would always say, I never go anywhere without my praying hands and angel. Fast forward a few years, and my husband and I are at a wedding. Some weddings here in Pittsburgh have a tradition where you stand in line and then pay to dance with the bride or groom. Growing up around here, the dance was always a polka, and my mom was a very outgoing person who loved to dance, especially at weddings. I have a lot of memories throughout my life of standing in line with my mom at weddings, waiting to dance with the bride. So my husband and I are waiting our turn, and there was a woman in line in front of us wearing the exact same gold pins. I'd never seen them anywhere since my mom passed away. So I looked at her for a while, and finally I said, I like your pins. And she turned and looked at me and said, thanks, I never go anywhere without my praying hands and angel. That was the exact same thing my mom used to say. I like to think it was her way of saying hello to me at the wedding. Thanks. Okay, again, I, I love this story. Yeah, There's a specificity geez. to the language that mm -hmm. just goes beyond coincidence for me. Did the woman at the wedding, does she always say that too? And is that just something that uh, women who wear those pins always say, or that's the type of thing that they're going to say, or were the words coached to her in a way? Yeah, well, and that's the thing that we, we get back to that whole puppeteer thing that I mentioned in our last mm. break, but like, is is it about manipulating the course of things that were already set to happen so that worlds will collide? Or is it more about mm -hmm. manipulating the very specific event in this moment? You know, how does it all work? How does it all work? You know, I don't know, but I, that's, <laughs> well, that story is, it, it touched my heart. It's a, yeah, I think it's an interesting. It is. And, and, and that's what I'm saying is that that might strike you as odd, like, well, geez, that's what mom used to say, but you can also choose to believe it's mom saying hello. Yeah. Well, these next two, look, everybody loves 
a dog story. Everybody loves their pets so dearly. We all love pet stories. We love uh, funny ones. Sometimes they're endearing. And, you know, the sad thing about that is that they don't last with us for very long. It's really not as long as most of us do with each other. Is it bad that I'm already tearing up? My dog has got at least five <laughs> years left. I'm already oh, upset. <laughs> I didn't mean to make you think of that. But here's here's the good thing uh, with one of these that we're going to hear. Maybe they don't completely leave us when they go off to wherever they do. But the first one is a story from Heather. And this one's interesting in that this is also about both of these stories involving pets. For different reasons, I believe sometimes when you really want it and you ask for an answer. Sometimes you'll get it. Hi, guys. Well, I heard your message calling for uplifting stories, and I thought it was time for me to share this story. I haven't told anyone. I have not told my family. I have not told my bestest friends in the world, but maybe it's time. About 20 years ago, I had just moved out of my house. I was a school teacher. I just moved in with my boyfriend, eventually to become my ex-husband. Um, and we decided to adopt these two little Pomeranians. My friend had two Pomeranians from the same breeder. She had two others. It was a mother-daughter pair. And the mother wasn't well socialized because she was a breeding dog. So she wasn't used to strangers and stuff like that. But the puppy was fine. So me and my friend decided to take the puppy and her two dogs out to the pet store. And we left Maggie, the older dog, behind. And... My now ex um, at the time, boyfriend, didn't had never had a dog before, so he accidentally let the dog out. So um, the dog is now lost, and we get home. He tells us what happened, and we go looking. We call all the authorities. We try to find a road. There were flashlights. We're checking the whole neighborhood. We're checking behind houses. We're checking just everywhere. There was an apartment building across the street, and I had gone behind there and looked with a flashlight. And We were about to make our second sweep, so I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll, I was heading behind our apartment building again to check behind there, because there was kind of like a pond. And I was starting to panic, and I decided not to panic. I cleared my head, and I decided to say just a quick little prayer. I had taken a deep breath cleared my head as I was walking and I said, please help me find her. And this is where it gets weird. Um, I'm not crazy, I swear. Um, I heard a voice and it was not my voice and it was not anyone I knew. Um, it was not inside my head. It was not really outside my head. It was kind of in between. And the voice said, turn around, go back and look again. And right there, I just, I didn't even think. I just pivoted and headed straight back there to the apartment I had just looked at. And this time I scanned the flashlight along down into, there was like a little gully there with some bushes. And I saw two flashing little lights. It was her reflection of her eyes. And there she was. And we found her. I don't know what I would have done if we hadn't found her. I never would have forgiven myself for losing this dog. We had just gotten like a couple hours earlier. I certainly would not have gotten into the dog world as I have. I started doing training and I eventually left my job as a teacher and became a groomer. And I've been a groomer now for about 15 years. And it dawned on me last year, I was thinking about like, why did that even happen? 
Why did I hear that voice? I can still remember it clear as day. If I hadn't found her, I probably wouldn't have become a groomer. And this is, I love my job. I absolutely love my job. It was absolutely the most wonderful decision to change careers. And I think that's why I don't share this story with anyone because they would think I was crazy. But there's also a little side note. Something else that's also strange about this story, and that is the fact that a couple times since then, my friends would, let's say a a friend would, their cat would get out and get lost, and I had the weird, uncanny ability to find that animal. Like, I knew exactly where to go and find them. I've almost been tempted to test that since then with, like, just random, like, missing cat posters and stuff, but I've been too chicken. Who knows? But hopefully you find that story uplifting. I know I do. I look back on it whenever my faith in, you know, God or whatever is bigger than us um, starts to waver. I think of that. So I hope you guys have a great holiday. And Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And keep telling us the wonderful stories. Hi, Scott and Forrest. Uh, my name's Mackenzie, and I have a holiday story for you. It did not happen during the holidays, but it was something that really just gave me the biggest smile and made me so happy when it did happen. My dog passed away about seven years ago, and we had grown up with her, so had her since I was five, so she passed away when I was 19. I mean, she was the best dog. She wasn't very friendly. She never needed many pets or attention or anything. Um, So when she got sick, it happened very quickly. She went downhill very quickly. We had to put her down. And it was so bizarre because we were waiting in um, the room at the veterinarian's office and it was my mom my sister and I and like I said she was not lovey-dovey she did not need attention Um, and while we were waiting in that room she went up to each and every one of us and laid her head in our laps which for the 14 years we had her she never ever did she went from my sister to my mom to me and then she went and laid down and um you know, then it happened. We we put her down, and it was horrible. It was so hard. And it was a couple days after. We were obviously thinking about her, but I had walked into my bedroom, and this thought popped into my head. I noticed that I had a water bottle sitting on my nightstand, and it was so bizarre because it was this thought was just kind of shoved into my head. It wasn't. It didn't feel like my own thought, essentially. And it said, if you're here, knock the water bottle over. And I was talking to my dog. And as quickly as I thought it, I brushed it out of my head. And like, that is ridiculous. I don't even know why I just thought that, how that just happened. So I turn around to leave my bedroom. And as I'm walking out, my water bottle fell over. And it had been there for a few days. I was 19, didn't clean my room very often. And it just made me smile. And I said, hello, baby girl, I miss you. And yeah, never 
to this day. I've never had any of those thoughts, um, any more thoughts of if you're here, do this or do that. Um, and I think it was her way of just saying hello and acknowledging that she knows when we're thinking about her. And yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening. You know, I have not personally had, uh, thank you for those stories, by the way, Mackenzie and Heather, really appreciate these. Just amazing stories, really enjoyed them. I was just going to say, I have not had a personal experience with pets that have passed. I've had pets my whole life. And the whole mm-hmm. first part of my life, it was cats. And then it became dogs. I'm not one of those people's like, oh, it's only cats for me or only dogs. I, I love animals in general. And mm-hmm. I have fond memories of all of the ones that I've had over the years, I do feel like there's certain ones that I think are still around, but I don't have any, I can't put point to that in any particular right. proof of it, but they do kind of feel like they're always with you after they pass. And I'm not just saying because their ashes are in the closet about 10 feet from me, but uh, <laughs> oh. Oh. are they? <laughs> they are with the cats. I, yeah, we, I don't know. I didn't really know where okay, they wanted then. to go. I thought they'd be happier with us than anywhere else. <laughs> I could be wrong. Yeah. Hiding a, I'm unleashing emails right now, but I, I think. Uh, <laughs> Two things, though, uh, Mackenzie wanted us to point out or oh, that yes. she put as an addendum to her story in the email she sent is, uh, correction one, the dog was friendly. She wanted to make that point. It's It wasn't a mean dog. It was very friendly. Right. She just meant that it wasn't very affectionate. And here's the other thing about animals and pets. We certainly all know, any of us that have had one, is that they all have differing personalities. Just for the record, I call those dog analogies and cat analogies. They have a different <laughs> cat analogy or different yeah. dog analogy. They have modes yeah. of behavior uh, within their species of what they are. Well, there's are. introverts and extroverts and playful and lazy yeah. and what, you know, and yeah, you got to work like with like people. Yeah. Exactly <laughs> like people. And, and on the interesting thing about them hanging around, certainly you can kind of debate, well, animals don't really have a soul. So where do they go? And then there are others who are psychic mediums who say, well, some pets, they do have a presence. It may not exactly be like a human soul because, as we always said, we're special in a way. But our pets are special too. And the presence that they have in this world and then the next uh, sometimes dissipates, sometimes goes away, sometimes it stays with us. I do not for one second believe that animals don't have a soul. That's my personal belief. Boy, that is a whole other show about uh, people uh, measuring uh, uh, animals. You've heard the the term 21 grams. Yes, I know about the the movie. Yeah. Scientifically quantifying the the weight of the soul. Yeah, so that people lose 21 grams of weight, apparently at the moment of death, but animals do not. So that doesn't make them any less special. That's my point. You don't have to feel bad. I don't think you can put a soul on a scale, frankly. That's just me. That's a discussion for another time. Indeed, it is. Also, as an added note, though, Mackenzie wanted us to know that her dog had gotten so sick that she couldn't walk or stand anymore. So it was Mm -hmm. even more surprising that she walked to each one of us and laid her head in our laps. Yeah. For a dog that's, uh, and I, I've certainly seen pets that were like, like, yeah, I don't really, I'm not into the petting thing. Like, I'll I'll play tug of war with you. I'll go chase stuff, but I'm not a snuggler. Yeah. They just do their own thing. And so there's some, certainly a lot of uh, cats are like that too. For this dog, they know when they're going to go. Animals know. They, they get a sense of it. Yeah. If you've ever had a cat that goes and hides behind the toilet tank or goes off and they kind of get a sense like it's it's nearing the end and this one wanted to say goodbye which is very sweet but the other two things about this though is that when you ask for a sign when you ask for help when you want guidance sometimes you get it Mackenzie asked for a sign if the dog was there and uh, 
the water bottle falls over. But also, uh, Heather had asked, please, you prayed, please let me find this dog. And you got an answer. And I just turned on my heels, boom, just didn't question it. It was interesting that it wasn't totally inside my head and it wasn't totally outside my head. It was somewhere in between where the voice seemed to come from. But she just followed rather than saying like, oh, that's crazy. I'm, I'm just hearing stuff. Or, uh, you know, maybe somebody's radio is playing and I'm like the Brady Bunch. I'm picking it up in some fillings. <laughs> you, asked a, you asked a question, you got an answer. Go check it out. This is Andy Purvis in Brussels. When I'm not meeting the long dead ghosts of World War I soldiers in the Somme, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. This next story is pretty intense. There's a lot going on here. Yeah. We're, we're moving back into the human realm here. <laughs> How would you set this story up from Carol? Well, I labeled this one Christmas in July because I think that's what Carol said it was. Uh, it doesn't really take place around Christmas time or the holidays. But it was a big gift for her. And again, if you see the thread here, the through line, it's another feeling. It's not always a voice in your head, but it can be a really strong gut feeling telling you to do something. And when that happens, you probably should listen. Hi, I would like to share a story. Uh, it's not really a Christmas or a holiday story. In fact, it happened in July, so... I guess you could call it a Christmas in July story if you want to. But it was from when I was young, a good 30 years ago just about, when I was coming home from work one day. I was driving an old beat-up car. I believe I had just finished college. I was getting ready to get married and didn't have the money for a decent car. Uh, and it broke down all the time. It used to overheat all the time. The car before, it wouldn't start in the rain. Now I had a car that wouldn't go in the heat. So I was used to breaking down and usually I just wait it out, let it cool down, and then I get going again. This was a hot July night. It was close to 100 degrees. There was construction, stop and go. So I kind of knew my car was going to die. And when it started to overheat, I pulled over, passed the breakdown lane into the grass, and I planned to just wait it out like I usually would. But I just couldn't. I was sitting there and maybe it was the heat, maybe it was something more, but I felt like I needed to go. There was nothing going on. The traffic was stuttering along. Uh, I could see the workmen way, way up in the distance, but I felt this incredible urge to move. I felt like someone was behind me screaming, go, go, get out, get out. And so I did. I got out of my car and I went over to the hood, popped it up, thinking, you know, that was kind of my excuse. I got out of the car and said, all right, I'll just put the hood up. It'll help it cool down faster. But I still really needed to go. It was just an incredible pushing force to go. And I looked around and not far ahead of me, there was another car. And in that car, there was, looked like a woman crying. You know, it was still sunny out. You know, it wasn't that late into the evening. So I could see it looked like a woman and looked like she was crying. And so I went over to her and it was a woman, a young woman. She was maybe later teens, maybe early 20s. And she was sobbing and she was very, very pregnant. And I asked what was going on. And she said she had left her boyfriend up in Maine and she was going home to her mother. 
and you know she had been driving home and she knew she was on 95 but otherwise she didn't she wasn't in Maine anymore and she knew she wasn't in the state she was going to down south she was somewhere in between and essentially lost and very overwhelmed so I asked what was wrong with the car and she said it had overheated and well being an expert in that at that point in my life I asked how long she'd been sitting there and it seemed a while and I said why don't we get off the highway. We were at an off-ramp, and I knew the area. I knew right on the other side of the trees there was a McDonald's. And so I pretty much just pushed her over and started her car and limped it off the highway. All of this is really crazy behavior for me. I mean, now I'm a mom of three. I will happily boss somebody around. But back then, I was definitely not a pushy person and also a person who would just never leave their car. You know, and I, I always believed just, you know, stay off the road, get out of the way, stay locked in, stay safe. So I was breaking all my rules, but I felt the need to go. And so I did. I limped that car off the road. We got to the McDonald's and she said she was going to go in. She was going to get something to drink, something to eat. She was going to call her mom. And so I called my boyfriend. He worked right in town. He was very close by, called him and headed back up to my car. And my car was not where I left it. My car was a good 50 yards down in the middle of the highway, turned facing me and missing like half of it. There was also a huge pickup truck laying on its top, flipped over. It looked like it had been carrying a cord of wood because there was just firewood absolutely everywhere. There were fire trucks, there were ambulances. There was a man having emergency procedures out in the road. There were police officers just roaming through the high grass and the trees. It was chaos. And I went up to the first officer, the closest one, and I basically screamed, my car, at him. And he said, that's your car? And I said, yes, my car. And he asked, were you the only person in the car? And I said, yes, it was just me. And he said, hold on. And he yelled out to the police officers that were roaming out in the grass and by the trees, we got her, she's okay. And then he turned back to me and he said, where have you been? The man over there who had broken down on the opposite side of the highway was sure he saw you in front of your car, put the hood up, just seconds before the truck hit it. We were looking for you. We thought if the truck hit your car and it went that far, and you had been in front of your car when it got hit, that you could have gone anywhere. So that's why those police officers were wandering through the high grass and the trees. They were looking for my body because I can't imagine they thought I was going to survive getting hit by my car after it got hit by a truck. So he asked me, where were you? And I said, well, I went down to the McDonald's and helped this other woman get her car off the road. And he was like, you didn't hear anything? And I'm like, no. And I'm standing there in this chaos trying to put it all together. I'm trying to put together how all of this could have happened in the time that I was gone. Sure, the car accident could have happened. But then the ambulance is here, and now they're actually gone already with the person 
that unfortunately passed away in the accident. They have fire trucks. They have many police cars. I don't understand how this all could have happened in that brief piece of time where I went down to the McDonald's and came back up. But beyond all that, I don't understand why any of this happened. Why did I get out of my car when I never, ever would do that? Why did I feel such an incredible urge to get out of that car? And then why did I go basically up to a stranger, take over her car, and make her leave? That's really not behavior that's typical of me. Maybe I could hear, you know, the car chase way in the distance, somewhere far away. I don't know, because that's why that truck was going so fast. They say it hit my car at over 90 miles per hour. I don't know. Maybe I heard it. I, I don't think so, though. If it did, it registered subconsciously. And it seems like if I could hear it, it would have been there before I got that other car off the road. Maybe it was just the heat. I just was really bothered by the heat and felt the need to go. Or maybe something else made me go. Maybe I had something more that I needed to do in this world. Maybe the woman in front of me. You know, maybe this was all for her or her unborn child. Maybe just me and my beat-up old car was a means in which to ensure they got home that day. I guess I'll never really know. But that's my miracle story. I wish everyone a very happy holiday season. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thank you all for listening. Wow, this story has everything. It starts out, honestly, it reminds me of, <laughs> <laughs> reminds me a little bit of car talk at the beginning. Because she's like, well, I used to break down. It wouldn't run in the heat, wouldn't run in the rain. The other one wouldn't run in the rain. Car talk, which is a show that... It, was partially an inspiration for, I think, the nature of our banter. It's no longer on, but uh, that was uh, mm. Tom and Ray Magliozzi, Click and Clack, or the Tappet Brothers mm-hmm. uh, with the car talk. Uh, anyway, great show. Look it up if you want to. But but then it it quickly changes into something that's so much more than that. And I think her experience is so profound and intense. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when you hear one of these stories, Forrest, and you, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you hear a story like hers, you think this one event came down, there's a guardian angel, and it changed the course or the outcome of these events in a way that benefited the people it needed to benefit. But in the case right. of this story, and especially even with Carol's own observations, they threw a lot of switches. They switched a lot of the train tracks <laughs> in the train yard, just hoping <laughs> that the right mean. outcome yeah. would happen, you know, right. and all of it paid off, but the most startling detail is probably the guy across the highway, right? Yeah. That one was interesting because did time shift? Did his perception shift? Was he just wrong? I mean, did he just lose track in his mind's eye of perception of uh, seeing her open the hood? And then the next thing he knows, uh, a few seconds later, that car gets rear-ended so bad, it demolishes it. And you wonder, like, yeah, was he just wrong? Was time stretched out for her to get down to McDonald's? Yeah. And again, of course, the other guardian angel one is that the common story set up. Uh, she turns around and the pregnant woman's not there anymore. It was, yeah. She was sent somebody that she felt compelled to help that was not a threat. That was uh, somebody she could help and uh, needed her help, but was meant to get her out of the way. 
it seems likely that this is two people who desperately needed help helping each other put together at that point in time where it really mattered the most. Yeah. And she briefly mentions that, you know, that was a chase. There was a chase going on with that truck. That's mm-hmm. why I was going 90 miles an hour. So there's another situation. There's a lot of converging timelines and stories here <laughs> in humanity yeah. in this, you know, because whoever it was, the implication is that the truck was fleeing for whatever mm-hmm. reason. You never know. There's all kinds of reasons that car ch- it could have been stolen. It could have been guy had a warrant or he just had a fight or flight thing or whatever. But all that stuff came together to culminate in the end of the chase, which might have hurt someone or a lot of people a lot worse if she hadn't been there. In a way, she may have been the protector of the pregnant woman and her child. That's what I'm saying. And that's what she was saying. Was I there for the child? Am I the one saving them? Are they saving me? Who's saving who from who here? And what I love about that is the complexity of it, because maybe they're all saving each other from each other. Well, it was a twofer. Certainly the guy in the truck uh, died. Yes, she said he passed away. Uh, yeah. You know, so that's in progress. That action is in play. What's happening down the road here, though, are two people that got saved because it doesn't seem like the guardian angel paramedic that just disappears. You know, that story. Yeah. Here's two separate people. But again, the other interesting angle is that for her, time was stretched out in a moment that she should have been, as the guy, the witness across the highway said, she opened the hood a few seconds later, bam. For her, it could have been 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Uh, she just doesn't know. There was an elasticity to the time. And again, too, is another thing I'll go back to is they're on a highway. This is a thoroughfare, which technically is a kind of ley line. I mean, it's not in terms geographically, but mm-hmm. it is. It's something we've talked about. It's all the acti- the human activity. And then you get into the fact that people are moving at a high rate of speed, but people who are stopped or Outside of that stream, there's so many different things that seem to work together to affect your perception of events. But uh, this is a is a crazy string of events that it seemed to work out in an unusual way. Well, if you believe in the the idea of some sort of uh, adjustment bureau, you, yeah. know, you saw that movie. Yeah. Here, the rules were bent a little, the rules of time, or maybe just perception to make this happen. But whatever was in play here, what we do know is that Carol listened to that gut feeling and two people were saved. I just want to very quickly make a, a quick aside. I think I, I mentioned on a show a week or two ago that my grandmother had come down with COVID. I wanted everyone mm-hmm. who's been asking to know that she is back home. She's been discharged from the hospital and is doing much, much mm-hmm. better. I spoke with her today and she's doing very well. However, two That's other great. elderly members of my family are now hospitalized with it, uh, who live nowhere mm. near her. It's completely unrelated cases, so yeah. it's kind of going crazy right now. But the thing that made me think of it just now is that the EMTs that came to take these two members of my family to the mm-hmm. hospital, just when you talk about salt of the earth, just amazing, selfless people, I just want to give a shout out, uh, not only to them, but to all the healthcare workers that are dealing with this pandemic right now, It's just amazing to see people like that going right into the face of danger on a regular basis to help other folks that are in a bad situation. So absolutely. Yeah. And if you ask them, they're just doing their jobs. Yeah, they were were very matter of fact about it, which makes it even more amazing to me. And speaking of being matter of fact about things, one of the things Mm -hmm. I was matter of fact about when it came to sending stuff in for this show was to please send a recording. However, many of you (laughs) sent emails. Now- (laughs) These emails, Ah. though, a lot of them are really great. And again, we couldn't include everything in the show. 
But right. uh, just because they weren't audio recordings didn't mean that we didn't want to get them into the show. So we have an email coming up here that we felt like yeah. needed to be read. Uh, Forrest, you're going to read this one. I don't know if you want to yeah. do any kind of setup or just go into it. I will, because of course, as we asked for heartwarming stories, we had to have one creepy one at least. <laughs> you know, we had to give you some kind of a spooky Christmas story, and this is it. And the thing is, what I like about this one, Scott always makes fun of me for saying, uh, you know, a, a good story has a button on it. It's it's got a hook at the end, a little twist, a little a little callback. And not that it has to have any of that to be a good story, but sometimes stories just stop. Look at the Coen Brothers. I like a lot of their movies. Sometimes they just stop. What I'm saying <laughs> is that a, a good story sometimes has a little kicker, just for a little flavor at the end. And Scott always makes fun of me, as I said, and says, that's not real life, man. That doesn't happen. You stop looking for the movie and all this. That You're too wrapped up in movies. Not every story in life is a movie. Well, this one has a button, my friend. Well, let's hear it then. Yes. And of course, this one's titled Creepy Christmas 1997, and it comes from Jen. And she starts off. Hi, my name is Jen, and this is my story. In mid-October of 1997, I left California with my five-year-old son and headed to Minnesota for a fresh start. My mother lived there, and I needed a change. I rented a townhouse in Eden Prairie. This was a fairly new complex at the time, nothing old or scary about it, no creepy basement, just your standard two-bedroom, two-bath, two-story townhome with a single-car attached garage with a master bedroom above the garage. I was young, optimistic about my new start and my new place. I signed a year lease, but only lasted three months. Upon moving in, everything felt fine for the first week. The first thing I noticed was there are no sounds at night. Now, this place was in a row of townhomes all attached to each other, but at night, it was almost too quiet. Not even a vibration or anything. Normally, you always hear something when you're living attached to other homes. I wondered if all the other townhomes were empty or maybe they were just well-built. One night, as I just started to drift off to sleep, I heard what sounded like the garage below me opening. I got up and looked out the window, and I didn't see any cars, but figured it was a neighbor opening their garage, and it sounded just like mine. My bedroom was above garages, so it could have sounded like mine. I was actually kind of relieved to hear life and movement. I went back to bed. In the morning, as I went to leave for work, lo and behold, my garage was open. Unsettled as I was to having my garage open all night, I figured I must be on the same frequency as someone else's opener. The very next morning, I got up and went downstairs to make coffee before waking my son and noticed that the fireplace, the electric kind with the switch, was on, and again, my garage was open. I asked my son if he had turned on the fireplace, and he said he didn't. My son is honest to a fault, but I figured he must have and forgot. Then odd things started happening all the time. I would wake up to the stove being on, the fireplace being on, water running, doors closed when I left them open, things moved to strange places in the home, knocking sounds. It was starting to stress me out so much that I believed either I was crazy, uh, sleepwalking, my son was doing it, or the landlord was punking me. After reading to my son at night, I would just tell him to stay in bed. I was really afraid of letting him sleep in his room. I never let on to him, but I was seriously afraid. In the middle of the night, I would literally lay in bed and I could hear the tick, 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 swoosh sound of the fireplace coming on, which ruled out my sleepwalking. 
I would get out of bed, creep down the stairs, and see the light of the fire dancing on the walls. This was something you had to physically switch on. I would hear the shower come on. Now, at this point, I wasn't sleeping at all. I was really stressed out by the whole thing and, and didn't know what to do. When I would mention it to people, they would say it was my son or an electrical problem. It was not my son or me, and I didn't buy the electrical problem. He would be right next to me in the bed when I would hear the ticking of the stove or the fireplace. It was like someone just turning things on and off all night. Lights would go on and off. I would wake up to all the lights being on. The coffee pop beep would sound. The microwave beep would go off, like, like someone was pushing a button on it but not starting it. It was terrifying. I had spent everything I had to move there. I couldn't afford to move out, but I knew I couldn't stand it. I started to think maybe I had a creep landlord that was opening my garage at night, entering the place and messing with me, but I ruled that out as well. No one was entering. It was a pretty small place and you could see everything and the snow was fresh outside with no tracks. I put little alarms on the doors, but then was terrified at night praying those wouldn't go off because then what the hell would I do? At that point, an intruder or a ghost were equally terrifying. The alarms never went off. I was really trying to rule out everything. By this time, Christmas was approaching and I took my son to peck out a tree. I was pretty broke back then, being young, raising a child on my own, so I bought a fairly small Charlie Brown tree. It was only about five feet tall. I bought a strand of lights and my son picked out the standard blue glass ball ornaments and we decorated the tree with the sentimental ones we had. Now this tree was fairly secure in the water-based thing that you stick the tree in. It was perfect in the corner and looked great. That night, as I was desperately trying to sleep, I heard what sounded like balls rolling on the kitchen floor. I froze, paralyzed in my bed. Eventually, I did my standard creeping down the stairs and saw that the Christmas tree had fallen over and a couple of the balls had rolled all the way into the kitchen. The water was spilled on the carpet. There was no way it could just fall over. I picked it up, kind of pushed it back and forth again, and it was really secure. This was not a big tree. The next night, the same thing. Every single night, the tree would fall over in the middle of the night. Why not at 4 p.m., 1 p.m., noon? Just the middle of the night. This tree had pretty much lost most of its needles and was looking like crap. My son thought it was a silly tree and would laugh when it would be on the ground again in the morning. I would play along and laugh as if we picked out the crooked tree, but inside I was pretty shook. Then on Christmas Eve, I heard a big crash. The tree had literally been launched across the room with the lights being ripped from the wall. That tree was toast at this point. We opened our presents next to a tree on the ground. We had the standard Christmas morning opening presents and stockings. One of the gifts my son received was a Radio Shack remote control car. I didn't even know who gave it to him. I knew all the gifts my family brought him, so I remember being surprised when he opened it. Nothing happened for about a week until one night I hear this banging noise over and over and over coming from the hall. I got up and saw the remote control car just running into the wall over and over. I was relieved, sort of, to see it was a toy, but also unnerved as to why it was there and why it was on. I turned it over and turned it off and went back to bed, but I didn't sleep. 
Everything at this point scared me. You never want to think of toys or dolls doing things at night. Come on. I mean, this is like every classic horror movie nightmare. I think I'd even seen that in a movie. This went on for days. I would put the car in the toy box and hear it in there in the middle of the night. I finally threw it away in the trash dumpster and remember being relieved when the garbage truck took it away. My son didn't even notice it was gone. He hadn't really played with it. The breaking point was in January. My son got out of the bed to use the bathroom. He was still sleeping next to me at this point. I heard him make his way to the bathroom and then he came running back to the bed and buried his head in the pillow in a panic. Now, he had not been aware of anything going on, never had said anything, not been afraid of anything before. And here he is in a complete panic state. I, of course, was in full alert parent mode asking, what is wrong? What is wrong? Tell me what is wrong? He was breathing so fast and then said, there is a man coming up the stairs. I get the chills even writing this. It takes me back to that exact helpless moment. I was a young woman with a child in the middle of the night with a man coming up the stairs to get us. I cannot explain the panic. Words do not give it justice. I sat there staring at the door of the bedroom expecting to see this man enter. I finally went into protective mode, jumped up and turned on the light and was ready to fight any way I could. I searched every nook and cranny of that place. There was no man, no footsteps in the snow outside. My son later said that he saw a man wearing a flannel shirt, the plaid kind. He had no legs. He was holding something big, and he looked right at him and started coming up the stairs towards us. At that point, I was done. I borrowed the money to move into a crappy apartment that I felt safe in and took the hit of breaking my lease. Like the Violent Femmes line, this will go down on your permanent record. Oh yeah, it did. And the landlord sued me for breaking it and it took me forever to pay off. I didn't care. I was out. I stayed in Minnesota until 1999 when I moved to Scottsdale, Arizona. After living in my place for six months, I went to put something in my closet and at the top of the closet was that Radio Shack car. I'm dead serious when I say it was the exact same car. When I moved, I unpacked every single box and item that went to Arizona. There was no car. I had been using my closet every day for six months. There was no car. I became so emotional, I couldn't even touch it. What was even more strange was the remote control was sitting right next to it. Now, anyone who has children knows that items are never organized and next to each other like that. You either have the remote or the car, but they're not sitting neatly next to each other at the top of a closet. My closet! This was two years later. Where did it come from? Who put it there? I lived alone with a boy who couldn't even reach up that high. No one had access to my home. It wasn't in the second apartment I lived in in Minnesota. So why did it appear in Arizona? This was over 20 years ago, and it still freaks me out. My sisters joke and say the man was a lumberjack ghost in a flannel shirt who just had to cut down that damn tree. <laughs> well, I honestly don't know what to make of the whole thing. But the car showing back up is the part that really gets me to this day, and I've never bought a real Christmas tree since 1997. Thanks for reading. Love the show. Jen. Okay, 
Well, the very first thing I want to say is I love your Casey Kasem <laughs> sign off at the end of that. I, uh, that was Thanks great. for reading. Love the show, Jed. And a <laughs> shout out to Jed in Minnesota. Wait, it's Arizona. Uh, I, here's the next thing I want to say. Firstly, because we're always behind and down to the wire. And by mm. when I say that, folks, I'm going to tell you that right now on the East Coast where mm-hmm. I am, it is 1.53 in the morning on Saturday, oh, December my. 12th, 2020, oh, my as we're recording this. So I'm just going to tell you that. But the next thing I want to tell you that is, you know, we were trying to organize all this stuff. We had so many stories that came in. This is the first time I'm hearing this email. I didn't get to read it. And I oh, love right. to do that. I'm a big fan of when movies are coming out, I don't look at trailers. I don't read reviews. <laughs> I want to go in not, blind. Folks. Sometimes I really get disappointed. <laughs> but when yeah. it's a surprise, it's that much better. And this yeah. was a really, really fascinating story. So I have a couple of notes about this. Uh-huh. It being my first time hearing it, the the first thing I thought about, and she addressed all the questions I had. I thought about this movie that I might be the only person who remembers. Yeah, <laughs> I looked it up while you were reading it. It came out in 1993. It was called Sliver. Well, so Sharon Stone no, no. and William Baldwin. But was that uh, a remake of a classic film called Slither? That had James Caan in it. See, I don't know. It might be a remake. I don't know enough about my film history. But what I can tell you about this was like it was probably when, you know, people were getting obsessed about hidden cameras and all that. Oh, yes. This guy owns the apartment building, uh, which is Tom Berenger, I think is the bad guy. Yes. And and he's got cameras in every – and he's just watching every – it's a a rear window kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, Alfred Hitchcock. And so the first thing I thought was like, oh, somebody's messing with her. She moved into this place and it's some freaky Mm -hmm. landlord who – has uh, servos or is electronically controlling things. But then when she talked about the shower coming on, that's really complicated. It's one thing to turn on a light or a camera right, or like right. a fireplace. It's a whole nother thing when you're messing with the plumbing. So then I was like, okay, yeah. that's something else. But then she was like, there's snow around the building. There's no tracks. And so it rules out a physical presence. We're ruling out the creepy landlord. We're getting into this whole situation. But then with the car, and I mm-hmm. love that there was a whole apartment in between there was a residence in between yeah, where that that's what she car said, wasn't yes. present. A couple of questions for you, Jen, which you're only going to just be hearing now as you hear this. In <laughs> yeah. theory, this show will post. It's not going to be Saturday, folks. You've already realized that by the time you're oh, this. Dear. It'll be Sunday. Uh-huh. But okay. um, where's the car? Do you still have it? Because if you have it, I want a picture of it <laughs> right now. And also, I'll buy it from you. Uh, this would be the perfect oh, thing oh, for, my, really? for our little set back here. Yeah, I would love to have that creepy car. Is as skittish as it's a haunted you object. are. You're willing to, it's a, you're willing this to get is a an object. awesome haunted object. It's right up there right. with Annabelle, and I like it even better. I'm a car guy, and I'm a Radio Shack guy, and they're going out of business. <sighs> I think they're all gone now, so that's even weirder. But uh, what an amazing story. I really love that story. And the, the yeah. other thing that... Uh, that I thought about this was um, how it connects back to our anchor story tonight with Mrs. Hingley, because then the next thing I thought mm-hmm. about was, was her Christmas tree. I was like, well, maybe those same <laughs> beings came and they just attacked her tree over and over. Possibly. <laughs> they hate this tree. <laughs> they hate yeah. this tree. Anyway, that's a great story. Thank you so much for sending it in. It's really, mm-hmm. really cool. I really enjoyed it. Well, and it had the button, which is the car. That's what I'm looking for. Okay, Forrest, we, so we got another audio one, right? And we're, we're going to do a couple more uh, emails that came in, but uh, we have a nice little audio one coming up here. You want to set this up for us? Well, this next story comes to us from Sarah and has to do with losing her uncle to a very, uh, to a very topical cause, you could say, but also has to do with how do you deal with that loss and the anger from it and the, and the emotions that come with that of losing a beloved family member. And sometimes when you're searching for some comfort, sometimes that can come from a total stranger. 
My story is a bit religious, but still very miraculous to me. My Uncle Frank was hospitalized due to COVID in July. He spent weeks intubated in ICU and sadly lost his battle with the virus. My uncle, like my family, is very religious. I myself struggle from time to time with my beliefs, but nonetheless, I do believe in a higher power. The night of his passing, I couldn't sleep. When I did manage to fall asleep, something woke me. It felt like tapping on a pillow. I had children, so I assumed it was one of them waking me, and as my eyes adjusted, I realized I was staring into complete darkness. I was overcome with a sudden fear, and I hadn't realized I was holding my breath. When I finally exhaled, I was filled with a sudden peace and, and calm, and I fell asleep. The days after, as with most tragic events, I was angry. I was angry at God. I was angry with my uncle. I was just oozing with so much negativity. Then a letter arrived, simply addressed to neighbor. In this letter, the person writing simply stated that they wanted to share some words from the Bible. They specifically write out Revelation chapter 21.4, which basically says, God will wipe every tear from their eye, and death will be no more, nor mourning, nor crying, or pain. The former things have passed away. My uncle passed August 16th. This letter was dated August 17th, and I opened it August 18th. I, I don't know any of my neighbors very well, and, and the return address is actually many blocks away from mine. But after reading this letter, I suddenly felt no anger, and I understood that I would never know God's reasons for doing anything. I also knew that it was a message that my prayers or conversations, as I like to call them, were being heard. I hadn't told anyone about what had happened. I, I truly believe people would have thought I was crazy or reaching for something that just wasn't there. To further confirm what I believe was a message for me, weeks later, during his very social distanced funeral, the first verse that was used to open the service was, Revelation 21.4. I nearly fell out of my seat. And in that moment, I knew I wasn't walking alone. Uh, the first thing I want to say here to Sarah is thank you for sending in such a personal story. Mm -hmm. A lot of these stories are so personal. And I think it's a magnanimous thing to do to share them, not only with us, Forrest and I, but also at least 100,000 people. So that's pretty... <laughs> It's it's pretty bold. So yeah. uh because well, other others can find comfort in that, you know? It's a yeah. gift, I think, to other people who are struggling with the same thing, especially during this time here when it is so difficult and so dark and uh people are struggling with negativity, just exactly what she's going through. Like I said, it was a timely topic here. You talked about themes that seem to emerge from a lot of the stories we got from listeners. Mm -hmm. And one of the consistent things that seems to be happening is a little bit of an amorphous relationship with time. And mm -hmm. I think this story is another good example of that, where it's hard to figure out how this letter could have been dispatched at the time it was and have it have that relationship to uh, the passing of her uncle. Yeah, what I got from this is that uh, how did the neighbor know? Na not a neighbor that she knows uh, or knows the family. Yeah, yeah. And it was also, the letter was just addressed as neighbor. It's not like they knew them well either. So is that some divine force saying, sit down and write a letter 
to your neighbor. Here's the address. They're going to need to hear this and it's going to make an impact on them. And this is exactly what they need to hear right now. That's more interesting in that. Is that just a weird coincidence that this person just sends a letter with a Bible passage from Revelation and it has to fit exactly what she's going through? Or did somehow psychically they know that her uncle passed away and that she would need to hear this? What kind of neighbor was it? Was this a neighbor from another dimension? Was it a na- was it an a- was it an <laughs> I guardian think a angel? Neighbor. Was it a spirit yeah. guide? Was it or was it the dude next door that you never see outside after ten a.m.? I don't know. You know, it's it's no no. Well, she said in this story is uh, this was I think several blocks away, so it's yeah. not a neighbor that they knew very well at yeah. all, maybe at all. So it's not the people that she knew close and right next door. But where where does that come from? That's the big question here. Well, these next couple of stories are a little heavy, but also a little light. And I think that's one of the messages woven through these anecdotes tonight, is that there is darkness, but it's followed by light. So these two stories deal with somebody taking their own life and somebody thinking about it. And yeah, and we just want to say again, if you're feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting himself or herself, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. And for those of you listening outside the United States, most countries have an equivalent line. Uh, Just hop onto Google and you can find it pretty quickly. So these next two stories that we wanted to share came into us in the form of emails. I'm going to read this first one right now. This is from Ann Suk Wong. Thank you so much for sending this in, Ann. Distraught after a friend's suicide, a sparrow would visit me every day until the funeral. I never saw this kind of bird in my yard before and since, but it seems when I needed the uplifting visit most, The bird came, sat outside my window, stared at me peacefully, and even tweeted like a messenger from heaven, saying, Your friend is okay, and you will be okay too. This was especially comforting because when we were in college, people called us the twins. We had the same happy, fun, and silly personality, and kind of looked alike too. Years later, it was a month before her wedding, I was looking forward to seeing old friends and getting ready to celebrate this joyous occasion with my twin. So you can imagine my shock when I got the notice that the marriage was canceled due to her passing. I had a lot of emotional sessions in prayer, not being able to understand, concerned for her family and mourning a dear friend who must have been suffering internally for God knows how long. That's when the bird would come, to remind me of hope in the midst of darkness, to comfort a sister who was left behind. I believe God's comfort comes in many forms. For me, It was partially found in this tiny bird that would sit with me and tweet occasionally its songs of comfort. And Suk Wong. Well, like I said, a message of comfort can be in whatever you take it to be, but perhaps this bird was sent. Yeah, it's amazing how often birds come up. And I remember in one of our earliest shows, I think it was The Birds, The Psychic, and Ollie, The Crime-Fighting Dog, also the longest title we've Mm -hmm. ever had for an episode (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, you've been fighting for longer ones. But. Yeah, but th- there was an amazing presence there with these birds. And it's funny how often that comes back around. And I, I still haven't mm-hmm. figured out how that connects to the big picture. But it does feel, it feels very real. And I, I'll tell you this, I mean, it, I, I guess it's kind of silly. I don't know. But we just got a bird feeder here, my wife and I. 
We have a nice little alcove outside our, our new place here in North Carolina, a nice big window. And we hung up one of those squirrel proof ones, which I'll tell you right now for the first two weeks is some of the best entertainment you've ever had in your life. <laughs> but you also feel bad for the squirrels. And I say the first two weeks because they're so smart. They Once they figure out they can't get in there, they give up. But when you first put it out there, they're all over it. And mm. also falling off of it and doing all kinds of acrobatics. But it is kind of a life-changing experience to have them visiting all the time, just to be sitting in the living room and see all the different kinds and having them visiting all the time. There yeah. is something very peaceful and relaxing about it, but they're also, I feel like in these cases, especially Anne's case, there's symbology there and there is a connection. And it's like you say, Forrest, it's about not just the message, but the context. And I right. think that's one right. of those stories that's a good example of that. Well, as we know from ancient history, birds have always been seen as messengers uh, from the ancient Etruscans. For divination purposes, birds have always figured to be very important. So we think they're special and they are special. And in this case, there's, uh, you know, this was a very special bird to Anne. And maybe it was just a common bird that hung out for however long she needed it until it served its purpose. And it was a coincidence. But uh, like I said, take the comfort where you can get it. But remember in our Ollie episode, what the medium's Rebecca Fearing, I believe, said was that birds were easy to send. Their energy is easier for the other side to coerce into being those messengers. So, yeah, I know. And whenever I think about that, I wind up feeling bad for them, especially in that episode, because all they're flying <laughs> into windows and doors and dying. So, like, I, I, know. I can't really reconcile it all, especially considering just a few minutes ago, I was talking about how I believed all animals had souls. And so then right, now we're flying right. them into windows. I get it. I get it. It's complicated. Just quickly, you just reminded me of uh, this textbook on death and dying. Uh, that I purchased in college, and I think I only read bits of it, uh, but it was fascinating. I just remember this one passage about the symbology of a of a dream, a very um, archetypical dream that had to do with life and death and its meaning. And the dream goes by the person sharing this to their, I believe their psychologist, was that they had this recurring dream about birds being bored, living their lives, being beautiful and flying and and eating and bathing and doing all the great bird things they do, but then falling into the trees and dying. Then new birds would be hatched and they would go through the same thing and they would live their lives. And as this person was seeing this dream unfold in their, in their REM sleep, the cycle was picking up faster and faster and faster. Birds were hatching, living, doing their bird things, dying, and the generations were going one after the other and picking up speed. And the thought in the person's head was, well, what's the point of all this? It's just cycle over and over again. Why do this? Why go through all this? What's the point of this life and death in this cycle? And as the dream picked up speed, the vision, the image of the birds were moving so fast that they were blurred. As you will see, things sped up on videotape. It was just a blur, and it came to look like a river of birds, and their flapping motions were just flowing into one another, and you couldn't tell there were birds anymore. And then as it progressed even faster, through this river of birds, of life and death, the cycle was this electric spark, this life force that flowed through the river of birds that was just a blur by now. And the person dreaming said, I, I get it now. It's not the individual life of the bird and the living and the dying and the pointlessness of all that, what really mattered was 
the flow and spark and energy of life that flowed through them that continued and was eternal. And that was the point of it. I always remember that passage, but it has meaning to me. That's intense, man. I, I, we're going down the road tonight. I, I wanted to make a joke about how many times you said birds doing bird things because I wanted to get to the, <laughs> what are bird things exactly? Oh, but, they do. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I don't want to uh, minimize. About... <laughs> that was a very poignant moment. So I feel bad yeah. putting the dad joke in the end there with the birds doing bird well, things. Well, talk about pets. Uh, I've had two cockatiels oh, uh, yeah. when I was much younger. And uh, we were talking about personalities. Yeah. They had very distinct personalities. Birdanalities. There you go. <laughs> See, the, one was, uh, he was very outgoing. He, he loved to whistle tunes. You could teach him different stuff and he was pretty goofy and lively uh he would scream at you until you got up in the morning yeah. <laughs> because he yeah. he wanted your company the second one was uh he was a lot crankier he was <laughs> sweet but he was just like i'm not no i'm not playing any games here just like uh you know i'll take some cheese it's if you got them <laughs> but he's he just yeah he was a lot less interactive but just fun and he had a good personality but just yeah just a little more laid back and and uh, not as fun but they both did bird things you know, bang their beaks on the cage when they wanted something. They would, uh, yeah. like a kid would, splash in puddles. So, so they do bird things, but they, within that, they had different personalities. Well, so where are we headed next? We have an, we have another one to uh, read, right? Another email to share. Yeah, I mean, here's another one um, that unfortunately deals with suicidal ideation. And again, folks, because of what's going on with COVID and the isolation and the the terrible loneliness. Yeah, especially around the holidays. By the way. We're with you. We're experiencing a lot of the same feelings you're experiencing. I, Like I said, I have uh, three family members who uh, all have COVID right now, although one is recovering. I have two other ones in the hospital. This is a hard time. It's a hard time. And we're, we're right there with you. And we're hoping to uh, bring you some healthy and heartwarming distractions tonight, uh, this holiday season. But it's <laughs> it's a little bit heavy. I mean, it is. I had an uh, uncle pass away from COVID in a care facility, so it's touching us all. So take it seriously. But there is light at the end of that tunnel. So, and I think the story points that out. And I thought it was a good pair with Anne's. So, well, this next letter comes from Luke in England. I have a very troubled past since birth. Abuse, neglect, and overall just awful. I won't speak any more of that or go into any abuse details. However, before May 2020, I felt like I'd come out of the other end with just anxiety and depression. I had a wife, a beautiful daughter, nice car and house, but due to a major trigger, my mental health plummeted in May 2020. I'm still struggling now, but a hell of a lot better. I became so anxious and withdrawn, I sought help and got it. Medication was tweaked and increased dramatically. Awaiting talking therapy still now. Pros and cons of NHS, National Health Service, is not the point here. I'm a trained adult general nurse, so I know a small part regarding mental health practices, but not a lot. This next part is a suicide statistic point that is important. But please advise people to get help as you always do. I know that the way suicide presents isn't as it once was. Before, we'd say, watch out for depressed people letting go of belongings, increased happiness, etc. Now, they say 75% think of it and do it in 60 minutes. So I was rather scared of this. I was scared one day I'd wake up and say, that's it. But I didn't want to die. I wanted to see my daughter grow. 
So about two months into this living nightmare, I have a poignant dream. This is the most realistic dream I've ever had. Nothing comes close to it. The dream began. I was in front of this force field, not so different from the one from the Independence Day spaceship one. I was banging on it, shouting, Let me in! Let me in! A calm male voice came to me and said, No, it's not your time. Remember. Then a pause. Remember. Then another pause. Remember. Then I was transported into a memory. I was in the definition of paradise. Words could not do justice to describe what I saw. Try and imagine the most perfect place, and it's probably a lot better than that. Everyone I have ever loved was there. Some who are alive, and some who are dead, and some who I didn't recognize. Maybe not yet. My daughter, all the animals I had as pets that I have now and had lost again, and some I didn't recognize. Everyone was happy. Everything looked perfect, as did everyone. Then, I got picked up by something. An invisible force. I was taken to a tube coming out of the perfect grass. A bit like a Mario tube you could go down. But this was transparent, a bit thinner and higher. The force pushed me into the tube. I was crying. I didn't want to leave everyone I loved. I was so upset. The same voice from before then said, Remember. I went into this tube. A second later, I saw light. Then I knew this is how I was born. Then I woke up and immediately knew I was in heaven. I saw it. Felt it. It was perfect. I then also knew it wasn't my time. The voice was right. Almost everyone there is still here. I'm not scared of death anymore and have no more fears of committing suicide. I knew I didn't want to, but I was afraid of dying. Now I know it's not my time. Something, something, or someone showed and told me it isn't my time to go. But when it is, I know I will be around everyone and everything I have ever loved. It will be perfect. So... I heard your message asking for festive stories or heartwarming ones. I know it's not exactly festive, but it sure is heartwarming. I wasn't going to write, but then I thought it's sort of in the same style as A Christmas Carol. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your shows. Please, both of you, your team and your families have a beautiful Christmas slash holiday. P.S. Regards to Grandmother Scott. She sounds like a fighter. Warmest regards, Luke. And there's a follow-up uh, email that he had. It's a little bit of that term that's been buzzing around, and I've been guilty of using it a lot. Uh, synchro mysticism, where Luke wrote back uh, right away and said, Good evening, Luke again. Wow. I paused the episode, then wrote you the email. Pressed play. Less than a minute later, you're talking about the Christmas carol. Coincidence? LOL. Regards, Luke. So he was uh, hearing the Christmas carol mention in our last episode. Well, Luke, thank you so much for sending in such a personal story. It's really something to share something like that. And I think it'll mean a lot to our listeners. Also, of course, thank you for giving a shout out to my grandmother. I'll have, I think I already yeah. said this. I don't know if I did, but she's home. She's back home. She's been discharged from the hospital and is recovering. I spoke to her yesterday on the phone. She's uh, doing very well. And uh, my hat's off to her caretaker, Robin, 
who, after my grandmother came home from the hospital, she was still contagious with COVID for five days. And Robin, with essentially homemade PPE, meaning masks and gloves and whatever, following CDC guidelines, she looked all that stuff up, did the best she could. She went and took care of my grandmother for a good solid week in her apartment uh, where she was still contagious. And she's just a hero in my eyes. It's uh, she, My grandmother lives a couple hundred miles from me. And um, uh, it's just, this is what's going on out there. And these people are amazing. So uh, anyway, thank you for the shout out. She is recovering and uh, we're still just waiting on a couple other people to get out of the hospital, hopefully here in the next couple of days. So anyway, thank you. Hi, this is Tyson, Gary, Cameron, Jeremy, and when we're not recording the Bush League podcast, we're listening to Astonishing Legends. Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. Well, the next, uh, I guess you'd call it a motif of sorts, story-wise, it has to do with uh, grandparents. <laughs> By the way, this is what I love about this. I just was like, all this stuff about my grandmother and the next couple of stories are about people's grandparents that have passed away. Mine has not. I want to be no. clear on that. No. <laughs> well, uh... it's like, the, it's not exactly the <laughs> ideal segue. <laughs> <laughs> no, some of these grandparents are alive. So. Okay, good. All right, good. <laughs> but, just, uh, but uh, you know, look, the, the big sleep comes to us all at some point. Ah, so Whether you're a king or a street sweeper, sooner or later, you dance with the reaper. Exactly. Yes, and I'm the, quoting you know, some people. Yeah. <laughs> some people are a little, they're just a little closer to it, uh, feeling that way myself. <laughs> well, this next story, Scott, is pretty interesting in that Christian here has laid out a longer story where uh, his grandmother who, as we were just talking about, had not passed yet, but was starting to suffer the effects of a long terminal fight with cancer. And towards the end, though, she was having these pretty startling clairvoyant moments that seemed to come true. But these messages weren't coming from the other side. They were coming from her while she was still alive and witnessed by family members, which then proved to be startlingly true. Well, Scott, speaking of grandparents, well, this one has passed, but this is kind of a fun, heartwarming story about Christmas, but coming from Australia. So down there, it's smack dab in summer, and it's hot. Yeah. They have hot Christmases. So this story comes from Liam and Amelie Curran, and it's about grandma making her presence known at a family gathering. Well, this is a short little email that came into us on December 6th. I'm going to read it here now. This is from Liam and Amelie. This happened a year or two ago. It was a year since my grandmother had sadly passed from cancer, and it was our first Christmas without her. She had passed in January of that year, and we were silently having our Christmas lunch. I live in Australia, and it's summer here for Christmas, so we had the air conditioning on. My grandma always wore this strange-smelling perfume, and I must admit, maybe a bit too much of it. (laughs) So it always gave off a very strong smell. Anyway, we all looked over at the air conditioner when we smelt that exact same smell that was there wherever she was. So it was a little unsettling and heartwarming to know she was there with us at Christmas, even if not in person. Thanks, Liam and Amelie Curran. Well, I I think we all have that older relative who either wears the the strong aftershave or the uh, older female uh, relative that wears uh, the sweet-smelling perfume. My grandmother on my father's side, who has passed, she wore tea rose. 
uh, which I really oh. actually like the smell of, but I always Oh, that's like, a classic. Yeah. No, that's yeah. more of an herbal. Yeah, yes. more of an herbal scent yeah, or, or nice. vanilla. No, I'm talking about uh, a perfume that's been around since the 40s. <laughs> Here's the thing. It's like, it's a very sweet smelling perfume. And when you smelled it, you, you thought of her and you want to give her a hug and you loved her. So it's not a bad thing. Indeed. All right. Well, it's time to move on to this next one. Uh, this comes in from uh, Jeff Wilson. This story that uh, I think you've titled grandpa's overcoat grandpa's overcoat in the light of grandma's feather bed yes well you can say these next three really do deal with grandparents but this next one is you could say a little unfinished business and it's a nice heartwarming story where grandpa had one more thing he wanted his family to find that maybe they weren't finding fast enough you want to make sure that it was found and and associated with him Hey guys, this is Jeff Wilson calling from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I've got one of the more weird stories that's happened to me around the holiday seasons to share here. So in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, I was 12 or 13 years old. Um, For some context here, my grandpa on my dad's side had passed away maybe two or three years before this, and as a result, we had a lot of his old things in our basement. Uh, we maybe were hoping to do something with them someday, but pretty much they were sitting there in boxes, just sort of strewn about in a back room in our basement. So the story here really happened the last day of our fall semester when we were finally free for winter break, and I got home from school, hung out with my parents for a while, and eventually went to bed. So that night, I had a really weird dream. In the dream, it was pretty much my grandparents, parents, a few other random relatives hanging out at my grandparents' old house. Um, Everybody was there, regardless of whether they were currently living on Earth in real life. And while we were there, the one thing that really stood out was that my grandpa, the most recently deceased, he was just sitting in the corner of a house that was perfectly well heated as far as I knew, wearing a long overcoat. This was a pretty thick overcoat. It had some flannel lining on the inside and went down to almost his ankles. He was over in the corner by himself, so it just seemed a little bit weird that he was wearing this despite the warm weather. Uh, Anyway, at the very end of the dream, one thing that stood out was him coming over to me, giving me a big hug, and then standing back and patting his right breast pocket. And that, I don't know, seemed a little off, maybe not by dream logic, but in retrospect, that's not a thing he was really known for doing. It wasn't like an affectation of his. So anyway, I wake up from the dream, and being the first Saturday of winter break, I just go downstairs, getting ready to hang out, maybe play some video games down on the TV in the basement, watch some cartoons. But the dream reminded me of my grandparents, so I went into the back room where we were keeping a lot of their things. In the room, (laughs) the weirdest thing is that the overcoat that he was wearing in the dream, it was long, it was tan, pretty recognizable, was sitting on top of a coat rack that we had moved over from their house. Okay, that's a little weird. I don't know, 12-year-old logic. It's a natural thing that you're going to put it on. So I grab it and I start feeling the pockets like you do when you put on a jacket. And in the right breast pocket, I find a little key. And it was like maybe an inch long, no longer than two inches at the absolute maximum. 
And I start looking around saying, okay, what am I going to put this in? Is this to a door? Is it a magic treasure? Eventually, I find buried under some of the things a box. And the box was like, it was a fireproof safe that you would maybe keep some documents in. You put your passport, your important documents that you just don't want to lose, and the key fit. And I clicked it open, and inside was a class ring that I would later find out belonged to my grandpa. As well as, probably more importantly, an autobiography that he had written. So my grandpa was a veteran of the Korean War. He had been briefly captured by the North Koreans. Eventually was released, but it was a whole thing that I was never really informed on as a kid. And I honestly don't think that because of the PTSD, the trauma of war, he'd really shared with anybody else. But he had left behind this memoir talking about that portion of his life. So we were able to use this document that we had never seen before. Um, My dad had apparently not been able to open the safe and sort of assumed there was nothing of value in it if his dad had never thought to give him the instructions on how to open it. So I eventually run upstairs. I share this all with my dad saying, look what I found, look what I found. And he was in shock. Um, We weren't a very huggy, touchy-feely family, but there were definitely some tears that day. And it was pretty cool. It was neat to be able to see this side of my grandpa, my dad's dad, that we'd never really seen before. In this family still, we share that as the last Christmas present that my dad's dad was able to share with our family. Thanks a ton, Scott and Forrest. I love the podcast. I've been listening since pretty much day one and hope to hear many more. Have a Merry Christmas. Thank you. This is a thread. There's a lot of stories like this where somebody comes back Mm -hmm. like, hey, check that top drawer. Look at this. Find that picture. Look in the photo album. I left this thing here. And I think that's interesting because, you know, there's this whole idea that once you go to the other side, it's like, ah, I'm done with these material things and the (laughs) carnal nature of being a human being. And like, I'm on to the the bigger and better. And it's like, oh, but wait, you know what? I did write an autobiography. I'm out of here, but just, you know, you should share yeah. that with people. I put a lot of work into it, which I love. I, I think it's yeah. funny. It's cool. Look, this is another observation of mine is that everybody wants to channel and, and define these things and lock down a pattern. And that's the same for everybody. We all go through the same thing. It's, I think it's different for a lot of us. Uh, some people go on. Some people hang out for a while. What do you care? It's eternity. <laughs> you, you can't tell what time it is. <laughs> what so, do you care? It's eternity. Uh, yeah, and then there's some people who do have unfinished business, and that keeps them around. And it's sometimes it's awful. Sometimes it's, I need you to solve who murdered me, uh, or I need to bring this horrible truth to the light of day. And then sometimes it's like, hey, I got a class ring. You guys should have that. And here's my life story. This is really important to me. So I don't want you to donate the coat to goodwill, and then it just, you know, somebody tosses it. Yeah, just it. So, check the pocket. <laughs> yes, it was important to him, and they were glad to have it, and they yeah. had a really special moment because of that. So, But I love the delivery of that. Is is that the, uh, yeah, What is? it's also a uh, archetypical dream of a lot of people in there, some alive, some dead, just yeah. different people that, uh, that Jeff knew or part of his family, and uh, the coat. And then he realized that it seems kind of warm out. Why is Grandpa by himself in a coat? 
Because he had a message with it. Yeah. He was waiting to deliver. Well, this next story comes to us from a friend of ours who has a much bigger podcast than we do called And That's Why We Drink. And that's Christine Schieffer, who co-hosts that show with M. Schultz. We actually went out for dinner with them uh, some time ago before I moved away from Los Angeles. It was one of the most fun podcasting dining events I've ever had. And... uh, (laughs) No, I've, I've listened to a, uh, a bunch of their shows, and what you learn is that they both have really good personal stories. Well, yeah. It did, didn't M grew up in a haunted house, right? I believe so. There were haunted aspects of it, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they both have much more interesting personal lives than we do. Uh, yes, indeed they do. Well, Christine, thank you for sending this story in, and after uh, this COVID business is all over and we're all vaccinated, we look forward to getting together with you two again. In the meanwhile, here is a really good story. Hi, Scott and Forrest. It's your pal, Christine Schieffer. You may remember me from that one time we had sushi and that other time I butt-dialed you while you guys were recording. So anyway, I'm super excited to share my story with you today. It's not necessarily a holiday story, but I do find it somewhat uplifting, um, and I hold it pretty close to my heart. Oh, and for those of you who don't know, I promise I'm not just a Scott and Forrest stalker. I am the co-host of the Paranormal True Crime Podcast, and that's what we drink, and the comedy podcast Beach Too Sandy, Water Too Wet, and also just a huge fan of Astonishing Legends. So enough about me. I will go ahead and tell you my story. Back in Germany in the 80s, my aunt Amelia was going through her second divorce. Her parents, my grandparents, were strict Catholics and did not approve. They were so upset by the divorce that they cut all communication with her. A few weeks went by and my grandparents went on a trip to an Austrian spa they visited yearly. One night during their stay, my grandmother was awoken by my grandfather tossing and turning in his sleep, shouting, sweating the works, completely distraught. The next morning at breakfast, she asked him about it, but he brushed her off. He didn't want to talk about it. After some prodding, though, he finally explained that he had had an extremely upsetting dream. In the dream, he was floating in a hospital room, looking down at a hospital bed. In the bed was his four-year-old granddaughter, Clara, Amelia's daughter. In the dream, Clara was extremely ill, and Amelia slept in a chair beside her bed. He dreamt that as he looked down at her, Clara suddenly noticed him and sat up in bed. She stretched her arms out to him and yelled the German word for Grandpa. Opa! Opa! At this, he woke up, startled. My grandmother was upset when she heard my grandpa's dream. In fact, she was so rattled, she tracked down my Aunt Amelia, with whom they hadn't spoken for weeks. Amelia was so relieved to finally have gotten a hold of her parents. She had been trying to track them down for days to tell them that Clara was extremely ill and had ended up in the hospital. She explained that just last night, the doctor had told her Clara had an extremely high fever and might not survive the night. Amelia stayed overnight at the hospital and had fallen asleep in a chair beside her daughter's hospital bed. As she explained everything to her parents, Amelia remembered something else. In the middle of the night, she said, she had woken up to the strangest sight. Her daughter Clara had her arms outstretched toward the ceiling. With a sudden excitement and energy she hadn't shown in days, Clara, arms outstretched, called out, Opa! Opa! Clara's fever broke that night, and she soon regained her health. Needless to say, my grandparents and my aunt reconnected after that incident and put their rocky past behind them. They remained close until their passing many years later. I still sometimes see my Oma and Opa in my dreams, oftentimes during especially difficult periods of my life, to give me guidance and advice. They may just be dreams, but I don't know. When I think about this story, it makes me think maybe they're still around, keeping an eye out on their grandbabies. 
my favorite thing about this is when I, <laughs> she, she was talking about, it's funny, she made a joke about pocket dialing us that one time when we were recording. Yeah. And then again, it was just the other night we were, <laughs> we were working or something. And it was just a fluke. I had our Google Voice is generally set to do not disturb. It goes straight to voicemail because if it doesn't, it rings through to my cell phone and calls come in. 24 seven. So yeah. I'm not saying we're getting called a lot. I'm saying that they come at random times because people are calling from all over the world. <laughs> so, and I, I turned it off the do not disturb. And in that brief moment that I turned it off, it was maybe five minutes. Somehow Christine, who we hadn't spoken to in like eight months <laughs> or a year, like called through and it rang through to my phone and then I picked it up and we couldn't hear each other. And it was just, so I, then I texted her for the first time in forever. And I was like, Hey, did you just call me? And she was like, Oh no, I don't, we couldn't figure it. So we couldn't even figure out what happened. So then she was just like, I was going to do a story for the show. And she was like, ah, it's nothing. It's probably not a good story. And I was like, no, 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 send it in. So then she emailed us one and we're like, Oh, we read it. It was like, this is a good story. And it's like, well, <laughs> but can you record it? And she's like, well, okay, yes, yeah. I can record it. Yeah. It'd be ironic for a podcaster, a successful podcaster, to have uh, written the story out when they uh, are professional at recording and then relaying the stories yes. in a podcast. Christine, thank you for all the extra effort of going back and, and uh, uh, committing it to tape. And I use air quotes on that word. Uh-huh. But yeah. for recording and sending to us, I really love that. That story is really interesting because in a lot of ways, it's like an out-of-body experience is happening. It's almost a crisis apparition setup here. It's the grandparents, though, coming to the child in a fever dream. Yeah. So maybe that lowers the defenses, that opens the channels. The child being in that more open and fervored state is able to make contact with the grandparent's subconscious. And so there's a lot going on here. This is what I love about it. In, in that it's not just that grandpa had a prophetic dream where he saw his grandchild sick in a hospital bed with their estranged daughter sleeping in a chair nearby. It was that he was there and distressed and she saw him. Yeah. The child stood up in bed, reached her arms out and said, Opa, Opa, which is what he recalled her saying in his dream. There's a direct open communication there. Yeah, it's a great story. They're all amazing. But uh, like I said, they <laughs> those two have pretty good stories of their own and a ton of charisma. So uh, yeah. And speaking of which, if you haven't heard and that's why we drank, you got to check it out. You can get it anywhere you get podcasts. So uh, just search it up, ask your Alexa, whatever you got to do, listen to, and that's why we drink. It's a great show. And then uh, Christine's uh, spinoff, Beach to Sandy, Water to yes. a comedy podcast. <laughs> yes. So one of the several really fascinating things that's going on here is that, uh, you know, I just said uh, crisis apparition, but in a way, it was kind of reversed in that the child whose life possibly was in danger or the one who was in crisis reached out to a living relative. And that is different than somebody who is just about to die or has just died and is sending out that signal. But it's kind of the same thing, though. That signal is being sent out to somebody who is alive and is close to them as a cry for help no matter what the distance is, you know what I'm saying? So it wasn't somebody who just like fell off a ladder and, uh, you know, is gravely injured, but it's somebody, yes, a child in crisis and uh, in a feverish state who reached out to her grandfather or the grandfather in the subconscious state dream traveled to meet his 
grandchild in distress, and she saw him. Quantum foam makes me roam. That's a, a weird quote from a Michael <laughs> Crichton, uh, Michael Crichton book uh, called Timeline, one of his earlier books about uh, quantum time travel or whatever. But that's what it, it, it's a quantum experience yeah. when you think it's like by location. That happens quite a bit. I mean, you think about the. Uh, I think I was going to bring up this movie before uh, about a boy when uh, Tony Collette takes a lot of pills, and the son sees her from across the park, across the pond. Yeah. And she's just standing there and he's like, mom, like you're supposed to be at home or, you know, she's not supposed to be there. And she disappears. And that was very interesting, a form of crisis apparition. And as I've said before in the show, I have a very close friend who saw her father appear in her living room before he passed away, unfortunately, of cancer. And this is a strange thing. He also appeared at the same time to one of her sisters in her living room. So it was out of body while he was still alive. He had not passed away yet in two different places at once at the same time. Because they, of course, got on the phone and they called each other up and said, like, dad just appeared in my living room. Yeah, he did mine too. And he's still at the hospital. And so it's people in that last stretch there saying goodbye in a way. I believe. Well, this next story comes to us from one of our most interactive listeners at this time on Twitter, Cam Cashman. Cam, hello, Cam. I feel like I've known you a long time. Yes. (laughs) But this is a really good story. And I I just want to say all through it, you're speaking my language. I I uh, have some questions about it, but I'll save them for after the story you sent. So let's play it now. Hey, guys. I'm so excited that I finally have a relevant story to share for the upcoming episode. It doesn't take place during the holidays, but for me, it remains one of the most mystifying and personally significant paranormal events that I've witnessed. And on top of that, I can even share with you the actual evidence that came out of it, what my family and I believe to be a recording of my late great-grandma. So for my 15th birthday, my dad and I took a trip over to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania for a sort of weekend ghost hunting retreat hosted by Mark Nesbitt, author of Ghosts of Gettysburg. Alongside Mark, there was a psychic medium named Lane Crosby who was there to help us make contact with any spirits and just provide advice and support. There were a few interesting occurrences over the course of the weekend, but my dad and I were just not prepared for the final event of the program. We had just finished a tour of the Ghosts of Gettysburg headquarters, and we were sitting down in the lobby for a little EVP session with Lane. She asked us if we had any deceased family members we would like her to try to contact. My dad, ever the participant, spoke up and said, yes, let's try to contact my great-grandmother, his grandmother. Here, it's important to note two things. First, Lane was far across the room from us, and Mark was sitting directly behind us. They both had EVP recorders going. Second, nobody in that room, aside from my dad, knew my great-grandmother's name, not even me. My dad did not mention it before Lane tried to make contact. We were all sitting in a big circle as Lane started calling out to my dad's grandmother, you know, the normal, we're calling out to the spirit of Fred's grandmother, please make contact with us. You know, after doing that a few times, she finally asked, pretty basic question. If Fred's grandmother is here right now, can you please tell us her name? So we gave her a few moments of silence to respond, and it definitely should be noted that, as is the case with EVPs, we didn't hear anything in the moment, in the room, with us. So Lane initiated the playback from her recorder, and we listened to her ask the question, and almost immediately after she finished, there was a crackle of static. Unfortunately, it was really too faint to make anything out. It might as well have been some 
audio artifact or radio interference or something. So we were a little bit disappointed, but it was still interesting. Uh, we were about to move on when Mark spoke up from behind us. And he said, hold on, listen to this. And he pressed play on his recorder, and our ears both perked up. Because this time, Lane's question was faint from being farther away from us. But the static was there on his recorder, and it was much louder than on Lane's recorder. So before I go any further, this is what we heard. You'll hear Lane ask her question. If Red's grandmother is here, can you please state your name? And a burst of static after. Yeah, probably doesn't sound like much, right? It didn't to me at first. What was significant in the moment, though, was the consistent presence of static in response to the question across the two different recorders. I looked up at my dad to make my point, but his eyes were wide with shock. Fred, what's your grandmother's name? Mark asked. Florence McDermott, he answered. Mark played the recording again, and suddenly a name came clearly through the static. Florence McDermott. Now, I'm typically pretty skeptical of EVPs. I think most can be chalked up to audio pareidolia, but I don't know, I just don't think this is the case here. It may not be particularly clear, but the cadence and syllables of Florence McDermott come through, and I think along with the presence of static on the other recorder, I'm really left to believe that it's a genuine EVP. Now, my dad believes that the reason her voice came through clearer on Mark's recorder as opposed to Lane's is because Mark was closer to us and therefore Florence, my great-grandmother, was also closer to us. So my dad now believes that she's always with him and kind of acting as a spirit guide, helping him through hard times. I personally don't want to say one way or another what it is for sure, but I do think it's proof of some sort of psychic phenomena, and easily one of the best EVPs that I've ever heard. Uh, it's great to hear from Cam. He's one of our most active followers on Twitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mm-hmm. feel like I interact with you every day, Cam. This is an amazing story, and you're speaking my language on these EVPs. I have to be honest, I'm curious about the gear, because that sounds like a DR60 recording. Yeah, it's kind of the same tonal quality that you hear with uh, recordings with our with our DR60 anyway. Yeah. Minus the screaming. And that's the thing I think a lot of people don't understand about even our DR60. It's every recording doesn't sound like that screaming at all. We've had whispering on it. We've had intelligible speech. We've had a lot of stuff. And uh, it's something we want to come back to in 2021. But yeah, it's mm. that recorder is not just about unintelligible screaming. Of course, there's a revelation of uh, unknowable information, which yeah. always, that's the zinger. Well, uh, this is the last one we got that uh, came in writing that we felt like we wanted to share tonight. This is from uh, Marie. Uh, you wanna, you were going to read this one, weren't you, Forrest? Yeah, this is a really touching story about a parent saying goodbye in the closing theme, the, the course of the motif and the theme as we start to wrap up the episode here. And this one comes from Marie Nichols Britt, and it starts off, Good afternoon, guys. I truly appreciate y'all's show and everything that you put into it. I wanted to just quickly share a true story with you. It was July 4th, 1986, Independence Day. And my mother, this beautiful redheaded spitfire of a woman who was 47 glorious years old at the time, passed away that morning from complications of lung cancer. It was 11.15 or so in the morning and I wasn't there at the house. 
I was 13 years old and I was staying with my brother at the time because my house had been filled with people the night before because they all knew my mother was passing and I, being a teenager, just wasn't equipped to deal with it. So I was staying the night at my brother's. Well, that morning she passed, I remember waking up hearing her voice and I felt her kiss me on the face and she said, it's okay, I'm going to be all right. Just remember, I love you. And that's when the phone rang. And it was my sister-in-law telling me that my brother was coming to get us because my mom had just passed. I had three nephews and a niece also staying in the house. My oldest nephew said the same thing. He said he remembered her coming in. He remembered something being said, but that memory faded over time. And now he thinks he dreamt it. I know for a fact that it happened. And I think it was my mom's way of saying that it was okay that I wasn't there when she passed because she was always able to find her baby. And I was the last of my parents' children, so I was always the baby. I thought you would all like to have that maybe for your holiday show. It brings me comfort to know nothing can sever the love of a parent for their child. It's an intense thing, I'll tell you that for nothing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story. Uh, yeah. I really enjoyed it. She gave them all a kiss. Yeah. And uh, some just remembered it more than others. But that's another case of, of a parent saying goodbye. And maybe right at the moment, maybe right before the moment of them passing, or maybe just after. Well, this next story has, is in the same vein, but it has a, a little bit of a twinge of the Mothman prophecies because there's a phone call. <laughs> well, uh, this is a subject and a topic that I've been wanting to cover, uh, I think you too, for quite a long time, and we haven't gotten to it because this phenomenon has a really interesting aspect of instrumental transcommunication, or ITC as they call it, through electronic devices. And uh, we've heard stories about from the 40s from uh, one Hollywood actor who tragically passed away in a car accident to emails coming through that are slightly garbled text messages we've also just talked about recently, cell phone messages, electronics seems to be accessible by some in the spirit world where people are getting strange messages from past loved ones. One of my favorite stories is a brother who took control of his deceased brother's Facebook account and no one else had the password and suddenly messages are coming through to him. Like somehow his brother was able to access his own Facebook account from beyond and send his living brother some messages. So, yeah, it's a very interesting phenomenon, I think. And there's something to it that's just fascinating to me because, again, it's yeah. the use of energy and electricity to communicate with the living. Hello, Astonishing Legends. I'm calling from Australia. And a month before our wedding, my dad passed away from metastatic disease from melanoma. There were very sad aspects of the wedding, but we got married, we went on honeymoon, and about six weeks after that, we were back at home. My husband was back on call for the hospital, and I had the phone beside my side of the bed, which was silly, because he used to get all the phone calls. So I'd answer the phone. About two or three o'clock in the morning, the phone rang, and I picked up and said, hello, and it was my dad. And my dad said to me in French, I love you, je t'aime. And he kept repeating that to me several times on a very crackly, distant sounding line. And eventually his voice faded out and the line went dead. 
and I hung up. Uh, my husband said to me, was that the hospital needing me? And I said, no, it wasn't. And we promptly went back to sleep. I didn't mention my dad's voice. We didn't discuss anything. We just both went back to sleep. And strangely enough, both forgot about that phone call until several weeks, maybe a couple of months later, we were talking about my father. And all of a sudden, I recall that phone call that was maybe two or three in the morning of that day. And I said, oh, my gosh, I had forgotten that, that he rang me. And he said, who? And I said, do you remember that phone call when we got back from our honeymoon and it was really early in the morning and you thought it was uh, the hospital calling you? And he said, yes, I do recall that. There wasn't anyone there. And I said, yes, there was somebody on the end of the line. It was my dad. And I told him the story. Now, he remembers me picking that phone up and saying hello and then saying, no, it's not the hospital that wants you and hanging the phone up. Uh, the most significant thing I can take away from this is, A, we are both very scientifically minded and understand lucid dreaming or having nightmares and dreaming that you do something and that it actually hasn't happened. I mean, we've all had dreams like that. Uh, but this was an event that actually did happen. I did hear the voice. I did hear my dad's voice and I did talk to him and say to my husband, it's not the hospital. Secondly, was very significant was that prior to my dad dying, he had not been able to speak. He had um, the metastatic disease that had affected his speech centre in his brain, so he was not able to form words or coherent sentences. We could speak to each other by, I would speak to him and he'd nod or, or smile or whatever it was and we'd sit there and hold hands and I'd talk to him but he was never able to express himself to me through words. So I think that maybe he came back to tell me, yeah, that he did love me. I was always very close to my dad but um, this was a lovely, lovely thing for, to happen. I'm still very scientifically minded, and so is my husband. But boy, that's his head scratcher. Thank you so much for your great show, and come to Australia one day. You know what this reminds me of, Forrest, and I can't remember if it was an Outer Limits or a Twilight Zone, but there was something where there was phone calls from the dead spouse and then they traced the line and it actually went to the cemetery and down into the grave. I think I've mentioned this what? on the show before. Really? Yeah. The no. line went and they like, she was like, where are these calls coming from? And then they go <laughs> and there's a telephone pole and then the, the telephone line comes off the last pole and it goes literally down into the, like the husband's grave. And oh. just like, he's, he's just it's torture. What does he want? What's he, I can't remember. I just remember he's, thinking, he's wait, just, how He's does Craig that work? calling her from beyond is what yeah, you're saying. Call, he's Craig call, calling her from the yeah, grave. Yeah. But in this case, though, what a heartwarming story. This is another one that's like, it's strange, but there's a couple of things I love about this. One, it's just the message. I love you. But it's in French. So we never find out if her grandfather was French or spoke French. We know these folks live in Australia. But we don't know what significance that was, other than uh, it's a very distinctive thing. It wasn't his voice. 
And the other thing I liked about it is that as the energy dissipated, his voice started to fade and it faded and it faded until there was nothing left and the call ended. Yeah. And then she just went back to sleep. Yeah. That's a little bit of a, not apathy, as I say, because that sounds like she didn't care. It's just these things make you sleepy in a way. Like, yeah. like you said, it's, it's comforting. And sometimes when it's not comforting, but you, you go back to sleep. Yeah. And then she forgot about it for a while, but it was verified by her husband. And also I do like that they're very scientifically minded and uh, very rational people and, and really with it. He can't deny that there was a call in the middle of the night at the time that she specified. So I don't know. It's just, I, I really like this one. Short and sweet. And what a, uh, what a nice last message. Indeed. And by the way, it just briefly, do you know who Serge Gainsbourg is? Of course, singer. yes. Yeah. It also mm. reminded me of his song, Je t'aime. Je t'aime. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, it's time to get into our last story of tonight. I think it's a really cool one. It's uh, from listener Craig Strickland. Should we just play it and come back to it on the back end? Or do you have anything you want to say before it starts? Just that I think we chose this one. It's just that there's something atmospheric about this one and the gentle, languid nature of it, I guess, the, the imagery it evokes. And Craig, who tells the story, he's got a great voice. And just the way it comes off, it's just, it was very soothing and very pleasing, I thought to myself, to my own ears. And the message was subtle. It wasn't a slam bang story with a bunch of fireworks. High it concept. was a uh, Michael Bay story. <laughs> <laughs> no, no cars were flipping in midair. This was a, uh, uh, it, it could be explained away. But I think this is the point as we get to the final story here of a lot of these, and that you can try and explain these away. But is it better to just let them be? My name's Craig, and I live in a beach town in Southern California. Ever since I retired a few years back, I've been taking hikes down the beach when the weather's nice. And October of 2018, the weather was wonderful most of the month, and there were nice low tides, so I took the opportunity to take a number of walks along the sand. One day, as I was walking, I was all by myself. There were lots of people on the beach because of the nice weather. But I was walking alone, just had my earbuds in. I was listening to a podcast, possibly Astonishing Legends, possibly music, I don't recall. But I suddenly stopped and became fixated on a man who was walking towards me. I was heading south along the beach, and this man was heading north. He was quite a ways off when I first spotted him. But it was very unusual because he was really the spitting image of my dad, who had passed away the year before. Now, I knew that this was clearly a look-alike who was simply doing what I was doing and walking up the beach. But I just couldn't take my eyes off this guy as he got closer to me. And I realized when he was not far off that he was even wearing clothing that was similar to the clothes my dad had, right down to a hat my dad used to wear when he would go to the beach, which we would call his Gilligan hat, and everything about his walk and the way he was swinging his arms just really was dead on what 
I would have thought of when thinking of my dad. So I turned off the podcast and really started concentrating as he got closer and closer and then passed me. He didn't look at me, but I couldn't resist staring as he walked just a few feet away because from a side profile, he really was absolutely a copy of my father down to the jawline, even a little half smile he had on his face. My dad had a great sense of humor, and if he thought he was playing a little joke on someone, you would see him smile just like that. So the guy walked past me. I stopped cold and just turned around and stared and watched this man move on. Now, clearly, I knew this had to be someone that just looked like my dad. I try to be logical about these things. I've never really had a paranormal experience before. I wasn't creeped out. This is something that actually was kind of uplifting. It was on a bright, sunny day. And, you know, imagine it was like an image of my father smiling as he walked past. But I knew this had to be some guy that just looked like my dad. I noticed a couple other weird things, however. One, I told you the beach was crowded. And so there were people making sandcastles, people throwing frisbees, and families just gathered here and there. This was before COVID, but there's like an unwritten rule when people are walking down the beach. You keep a little distance from folks. You would move aside, or people would uh, try to avoid somebody walking towards them. But as I watched this guy heading further north along the beach, I noticed the weirdest thing, and that is he just kept a straight line of travel. He was walking right ahead, never deviated. Nobody moved away from him as he approached. He passed very close to some of the people. I remember there was a family making a sandcastle. He walked right by them. Nobody moved. He didn't move. They didn't even look up. It was as if no one saw him. And it was as if he didn't see them. So I kept watching. I remember at one point just kind of trying to clear my head. I looked back in the direction where I had been heading down south. And then I looked back again and he was gone. There was really no place he would have gone. He wasn't that far away when he appeared to have vanished, but I had lost him in the crowd, I guess. So, two more things. I realized all of a sudden that the point at which this man, this lookalike to my dad, had apparently disappeared was the canyon leading to the house he had lived in with my mom for 20, 25 years. I realized another thing, too. This day was his birthday, October 20th. I was not taking this walk with his birthday in mind. I was hiking a lot along the beach. I had hiked two days before. I would go again later in the week. But I realized here, his birthday, a year after he had passed away, my dad, who always loved the beach and taught me and my brother to love the beach, 
or a person that looked a lot like him had just passed by me on the sand and disappeared at a point where he would have been able to follow a trail to head up to his own old house. Thanks for letting me tell my story. Well, I think this is a fitting last story. One of the things that I feel ridiculous to bring this movie up all the time. It's it's not even that great a movie, mm. but I I did enjoy it, which is Contact. And this this whole <laughs> beach scene reminded me of yeah. no spoilers, but what it is a spoiler. It reminded me of of mm. one of the scenes in that movie near the end of the movie. So, yeah. There is something so peaceful and wonderful about it and the message is there. And again, I, I like what you always say about this stuff. And I, I said it a few minutes ago, it's about the context and yeah, you start to debate whether or not there's a reality to it, whether this was an ethereal experience or it was a case of mistaken identity. Does that matter if the context sends you the message that you need to get, you know? Well, Scott, there you go. I mean, I think it's, uh, that's kind of where I'm heading with my final thoughts here in that he didn't come up and say anything to him. He didn't even seem to notice uh, what could have been his son in flesh and blood. And maybe this was just a guy that was, as he said, just really, really looked like his dad in every possible way from clothing to mannerism to walk. And uh, it was just so odd. And and uh, maybe he wasn't there at all. And here's the thing. And you know anybody who has a dad, which is pretty much everybody. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's what's also universal. Yeah, everyone right everyone knows that because sometimes you do, and this has happened to me. I'll be somewhere, and it, by the way, you know, I've I've lived in Los Angeles, New York, North Carolina, all these times. My dad was living in Denver, and I I did live in Denver when I was younger, but like the odds of seeing him were nil. So, <laughs> but once every two or three years, maybe I might be in an airport or somewhere, and I'd see a guy walking, and I'd be like, it's the body language, it's the wardrobe, yeah. it's everything. And probably, I think everybody does it. Every now and then you'll be like, oh my God, that person walks, looks, talks, and yeah. is acting just like my mom or my dad or my uncle. Or what. You see that familiarity, but it's a very, very rare occurrence. So in these particular circumstances for him, <laughs> it seems super specific, especially considering the geography of it. You right. Know? And right. I think that's what makes it seem more miraculous than coincidental. Well, the, yeah, it, I mean, in one part, I believe that there are uh, people templates, and <laughs> I see this. Yes, I'm with I you on this. I see this with faces. Yeah. It's funny, uh, one of our good friends, his wife, who's uh, kind of petite with a brunette, I saw a version of her that is about 5'11 and blonde. It's the same facial structure. It's like, oh my gosh, that's so-and-so, except in a just a different version. But that's that facial template. Yeah. And so, yes, there are, especially with people's faces, I believe there's a, there's a certain number of them based on the same mold. And then uh, you get variations of that. And you, same thing with people's walks and their mannerisms and their their clothing choices and all that. And that can all line up. But really... Where you're taking me in my thinking is that, does it need to be analyzed? Can you just let that be a nice moment on the anniversary of your dad's passing where you saw him one time on the beach in his favorite element, exactly where he would be and enjoying himself and have that as a nice moment and not have to examine that too closely under the microscope? Yeah. Well, folks, so as I said in the beginning, maybe you have begun to notice there's a theme emerging or a theme did emerge from the types of stories we received. Most of them had to do with a past friend or loved one, or even a beloved pet who reached out from the great beyond to relay a message of love, or to take care of some unfinished business, or 
or simply a plea to not forget them because wherever they are, they haven't forgotten us. Maybe those are just the types of stories people remembered from their lives when we asked for uncanny or unusual personal stories with an uplifting or inspiring element. But judging by how rare these experiences usually are, what's more likely is that once in a lifetime or a handful in a lifetime uh, occurrences like these, maybe they're the blessings and reminders that have made the most impact over all else and the moments that will stay with us for the rest of our lives. And the commonality is that many of us have had instances of rationally unexplainable communications from the other side. They may be rare and fleeting moments, but they're as real as you're willing to accept. And their true value and meaning doesn't depend on your acceptance. So you can look at a lot of these stories and say, they're all just coincidences. Outrageous coincidences, I'd say in many cases, but somehow explainable. Or you could live with the message you find in the experiences. Because what's not up for debate is that life is often very rough. It's filled with sorrow and despair, with tragedy, with divisiveness and suffering, like the beginning of some of these stories. But there's also hope and acceptance and joy. Not always, but enough to keep us going. And you could believe that once we die, that's it. Lights out. We end in the dirt. And that's fine. That's your choice. Or you could believe in the messages and clues that there is a place beyond this one. And everyone we love will be there waiting for us. That our bodies eventually pass. But love never dies. That's going to wrap up this episode on the Mince Pie Aliens and your holiday listener stories. Next week, we're going to be back with our last show of the year, a veritable powerhouse holiday party with some of our favorite folks, including Micah Hanks, Jim Harold, Richard Haddam, Rob Christofferson, the seldom heard Tess Feifel, and of course, Forrest and yours truly. Do not miss it. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Uh, again, my name is Jason Clark. My name is spelled like this. T-Y-S-O-N. G-A-R-Y-C-A-M-E-R-O-N. Jeremy Bork. 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 Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>